How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. Uh, we are three men who love apparently Star Trek a lot, but also <laughs> other movies, and we research them and study them and bring you all the information, everything you could ever fucking possibly want to know about a movie. You'll get it in this podcast. I want to be And then some. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you t- saying your name, Gary Horn. Yes, that's me. Uh, I'm co-host Justin Bishop. And I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. Let me ask you, what do you get when you combine a New York restaurateur, DeVito, DiCaprio, into a crowded room for jimmy cameroon absolutely nothing consequently that collapse combined with arnie's craving for continued commercial clout caused curtis in a crunch to klutzily cut a rug while Catherine quietly called out the conspired canoodling with the co-star the creator was cautious to continue creating cars and cool stuff conceived in a computer but couldn't completely cast aside the cash cow that could be this comedic cascade so come along as we continue to chronicle the career of James Cameron in this fifth chapter of our series titled The Man of Tomorrow. Wow, that was some uh, V for Vendetta shit there, Todd. Yeah, you're some You know what for, I got out of that? For was, Vendetta. <laughs> what I got out of that was, uh, was Danny DeVito in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Gary, Gary has not read the notes. Nope. <laughs> Gary's not uh, read the notes. There, there's a brief Danny DeVito mention, but no, uh, he may have been better in the Tom Arnold role, but we'll get to that later. Oh, uh, I, I, yeah. oh that would have been so great. It <laughs> is funny. I, so listen, but as we get started, I've been on a mission with this James Cameron shit because I want to understand what this guy's deal is. And obviously, we've heard about his rep. Uh, but early on, I think we were like, well, he might be misunderstood. He's just a business guy. He's down to business. Yeah. But slowly, we've started to see that intensity build up with him. And what's weird is that, that I'm finding with him is it feels like he just had these like humble beginnings. The stuff we talked about before, Canadian guy interested in movies, you know, like science. Well, you know, you can go back to the other episodes and see all that. But John H. Richardson has a great article in uh, from Premier Magazine around this time where he dug in with Cameron a little bit more than I've seen in like prior stuff. And so I was getting into the true lies stuff, but he had some good stuff about his past. And well, I don't, I don't remember us talking about him being a kid so much. He talks about his parents a lot, about how his dad was insanely strict and yeah. a huge disciplinarian. And it made James Cameron, he says he resents from 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 being a child like he resents ever being told what to do like don't don't tell me what i can't do ever yeah <laughs> so so he wanted a, to be the guy who gets to tell people what to do basically exactly <laughs> and uh but even as a kid he was already like doing stuff I, and we may have mentioned some of this but he was like bossing other kids around getting yeah, them oh, to yeah, make we talked projects about for him yeah the rafts and forts and go-karts and uh mm-hmm. the sea lab for mice that they put in the niagara he uh he even described like a catapult and stuff that they were making that 
Watch. He made it. He made a. Um, he made like a weather balloon that flew over his neighborhood when he was a kid, and it almost. It was like a rocket with a balloon on it. It almost started like burned the whole neighborhood down. And like, wow. <laughs> he even tells a story about this kid who like stole some of his toys. One of their neighbors. And uh, I don't remember us talking about it, but like him and his brother, Mike, then went and like sawed partially through the limbs underneath the treehouse uh, in just the right way. So when the kid went back in the treehouse, it collapsed and <laughs> sent him to the hospital. Jeez. He's a little uh, fucking psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but then he talks about his mom, too, and how like she was super supportive artist, got him into painting, got him his first gallery show. Uh, and is 100% the reason he has sympathy for independent badass women because he remembers seeing her being frustrated. He felt like she was frustrated being chained to the house all the time with the kids and she wanted to get out and do things for herself. And uh, anyway, I know we talked about some of this, but again, too, he talks about with like 2001, like how how much it pissed him off. And I remember us talking about 2001, but uh, he talks about how you all watch it like 10 times in a row and then went and started building models and experimenting with 16 millimeter film because he couldn't figure out how Kubrick did it. And so it pissed him off that this guy had built something he didn't know how to build. Mm. And uh, so he said he would like lay in bed at night and listen to really bad music and visualize space battles and like how to build them and stuff like that. And uh, anyways, nice. a really fascinating look at this guy and how he goes into it. And uh, then he talks about seeing star Wars and how it pissed him off even more. <laughs> he's just like he said that's what i wanted he was like that's when i got really busy because i was like i should have made that well and that was when it was him and bill wisher and, and randy frakes you know when they were already kind of working towards wanting to make movies and then star wars was the one that's like oh just we just gotta fucking do this guys and then they went and made yeah. xenogenesis yeah and he talks about his first wife that uh you know she was a waitress at the time he was like driving for like a school district or whatever and then Part of what ruined that relationship, I think, was that he went crazy. Like she thought he went crazy because that he had been this guy. He said, I mean, he literally the quote was my wife thought I was crazy. The guy who used to like to smoke dope and go to the river, drink beer, drive fast cars. All of a sudden he's psychotic. She was afraid of me because he said he would like buy all these lenses and take them apart and find out how they worked and build. He built a dolly track, beam splitters. Uh, and this is all in their living room. Like he was like a mad scientist, like putting things together and pulling things apart. Um, wow. And he straight up says in this interview, too, even when he went to the Roger Corman interview at New World, he said he's like, my whole goal from the beginning was to get in there and spread like a virus. He said, I knew he's like, and that's exactly what I did. He said, three weeks after I started, I had my own department. I hired people. Everybody else that worked there hated my guts. I won't talk about this forever, but he talked about even how much like even the Parada 2 director, uh, uh, I forget his name now, but he says he went there, you know, to uh, Rome when he went there. You can go back to uh, the first episode of Cameron. We talked about that, but he uh, he talks about the the director was so scared of him. He carried like a, a letter opener. <laughs> and thought the camera was going to attack him or something. And uh, so this is the guy we're talking about. And then he talks about studios a lot in the interview, just like how much he hates studios and that he got disheartened because like Orion wasn't properly supportive of him. In The Terminator, he talks about how the guy from Orion like came up to him and was like, listen, this is what's going to happen. You got a down and dirty action thriller. It plays for two weeks. 
drops high 50% the second weekend. It's going to be gone by the third week. That's what to expect. And he's like, that's not what we expect. He said that it gets number one and great reviews. And he said, and then he went to Orion and they refused to support it. They wouldn't beef up the ad campaign. He's like, they treated me like dog shit. And then Harlan Ellison comes out with all the stuff about that he thought of it. He was like, you didn't fucking think of this. And Harlan Ellison, they even had some stuff from Harlan Ellison saying is he got all my best stuff. But the wonderful thing is he combined it with new, fresh and interesting ways. I would have been very flattered. All he had to do was get on the phone with me. And Cameron would not. Cameron said time travel and robots are sci-fi themes that are very common. And he argued with him, Dylan Orion, even giving him the credit that he got on the movie. They said, fine, if you want to fight him, we'll support you. But if you lose, we'll sue you. I don't know. He's still bothered by it at, the, at this point of this interview because he said, I could have gotten risk getting wiped out or I had to give this guy's fucking credit. Like he sounds like a crazy person. And then there, there's the talk about like uh, how nuts he is in between movies too, like with the driving, flying, ballooning, all the stuff we talked about. Lance Hendrickson's in there with a story where he says he went to a party at his house one time and he had a brand new Acura NSX. He said, Jim looks at him and says, nice car. And he says, when Jim says nice car, that's a challenge. So I had to say, Jim, why don't you take it for a spin? And he says he took it out for 10 minutes. And when he came back, the rubber on my back tires was gone. <laughs> and Gail Ann Hurd's in there talking about it. She's like, oh, when we were dating, it's like we went off-road on a four-wheel drive, took the hot air balloon out. A huge wind came up. We ended up crashing it. We went horseback riding, ice skating. We shot AK-47s out in the desert. And she was like, that was the first weekend we dated. <laughs> and, um, but he said they would like when they were dating and go into like movies and stuff sets, he would like race her. Like she had her Porsche and he had a vet. They would talk to each other on cell phones and play this game called ditch them. And like, they try to shake each other and they're going like 120 miles per hour down the freeway <laughs> and just having conversations on the cell cell phone. Um, and I know that we've talked about how rich he is the guy, but I, I didn't realize this either. And maybe we mentioned some of the abyss, you know, like how much he did all of this stuff. And his brother, Mike is an aeronautical engineer and he built all these things for the abyss, but he has patents on so much of this stuff, like the, yeah. the CWASP uh, driver propulsion vehicle and all that stuff. Like he's making a shit ton of money for well, that's the thing is like Cameron is a scientist who has an interest in film. Uh, I mean, he, he's got an engineer's brain. Uh, and he utilizes that. But yeah, he he basically almost every film he makes, he's trying to create some sort of new technology uh, to go along with it. And yeah, he owns that technology. It's going to happen again on this movie. It's going to happen again uh, in a big way on Titanic, uh, on Avatar. Like he, he's constantly creating new technologies that then other filmmakers will use. I mean, we talked about how the lighting rig that they created for... Uh, for the abyss is now used by NASA to train their astronauts, you know, so it's insane. His brother, Mike, he, he was describing like how they invent things. He says, Jim dreams up a shot, figures out what he needs to execute it, finds out if the thing exists. If it doesn't exist, he tells me to make it. And if I say from an engineering standpoint, that can't be done. Jim says, don't fucking use the word engineer around me ever again. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> So, yeah. It, uh, and then, of course, you know, the last thing I'll mention, too, is that rep. You know, I was finding more and more stories about the 
the rep he has for just how, you know, we mentioned in the last episode, of the NFL thing about, he said, you know, if an NFL coach didn't browbeat his guys and say, you fucked up and didn't do this. He says, they, they point out the laziness and mistakes and blah, blah, blah. He's like, well, I'm the coach of this team and they're supposed to be the best in the business. All that stuff we talked about last time. I, I found like anonymous things where people say he just has like tunnel vision. Some people are very supportive of him. Like Ed Marsh is one of the crew guys on the abyss, loves the guy, says he's great. He says, but he's definitely quote, uh, during the abyss was saying, you know, I'm letting you breathe. What else do you want? (laughs) uh, There was one story from the abyss. I read later that said that he was a person claimed he was driving his Corvette around the underwater tank. I found a quote from Cameron that says that is not true, but it's or possible. (laughs) I mean, he said not true, but cool idea. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, yeah and, and, and mike and the stuff with mike too you know we talked about in the abyss and I, I, I know this is in the past but we talked about you you mentioned you felt like this was a brother thing that they would do to each other mike plays the dead guy with the crab coming out of mm-hmm. his mouth yeah yeah and uh mike says 100 percent. that was like james cameron's like you're doing this and he said you're going down 25 feet you're going to open your fucking eyes because dead men don't close their eyes you're going to put a live crab in your mouth. And when it's time to shoot, we'll tell you action. And you let the crab out of your mouth. He said it took five takes. Two times I had to crush the crab because Jim was taking too long getting the lights exactly where he wanted them. Oh. And he said, and he seemed delighted about it the whole time. Anyway, I'll <laughs> shut up. But even Arnold had a quote in one of these saying, uh, he's not the kind of guy who will try to say things in a diplomatic way. Oh, come if on. You, use Arnold's voice. Come on. I, I'm, I, I feel like I've been bad at it. When Just I'm do back it. To the other come on. He's not the kind of guy who will try to say things in a diplomatic way. If you do something right, he will. Well, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> Transylvanian or something. Listen, he says, if you do something right, he'll say it was disastrous, but probably a human being could do no better. If he was dealing with machines, maybe they could do better. So you walk away from the whole thing going, well, I guess that means he likes it. <laughs> and Arnold. Arnold seems to have a better uh, grasp on who James Cameron is than a lot of his other actors because they've worked together a lot and they're friends. You know, they hang out off screen as well. Mm. So as we discussed on our last episode, uh, Terminator 2, that was at the time the most expensive movie ever made. Uh, The official production budget was in the like $70 million range, but with the cost to secure Cameron's involvement, uh, Schwarzenegger's involvement, and the rights to the series, which we all discussed on that episode, the actual cost of the film was somewhere close to $100 million, which far surpassed anything else that had ever been made. But when it was released, it made half a billion dollars, which was an unheard of amount in 1991. And it made it the third highest grossing movie of all time. So after that kind of success, though, everyone in Hollywood wanted to be in the James Cameron business. Uh, This was a guy who dreamed big, uh, but whose ambitions paid off in spectacular ways, both in terms of uh, quality and capital. They made a shit ton of money, and there was no denying that. But after making the biggest movie of all time, Cameron had his eyes on something smaller. You know, he had made four sci-fi films in a row, the last two of which were some of the most demanding film shoots ever attempted, Terminator 2 and The Abyss. So he, he understandably wanted a break from that kind of work. So for his next project, he had his eyes on a nonfiction book called The Minds of Billy Milligan, written by Daniel Keyes, the guy who wrote Flowers for Algernon, which I'm sure we're a little more familiar with. The Minds of Billy Milligan is about a rapist in Ohio who suffers from disassociative identity disorder and whose lawyers successfully used his mental illness as a defense for his crimes, 
which made him the first person in U.S. history to ever be acquitted of a major crime by pleading uh, multiple personality disorder, which is what they referred to it as at the time. Cameron read this book and he, he found Milligan's story and his long history of childhood abuse that maybe possibly had led to his mental illness to be both moving and intriguing as a cinematic exercise. And he said, quote, to do all those characters and externalize the drama that was playing out in that guy's head would have been as big a challenge in its own way as making the abyss, which I feel like the people who worked on the abyss would probably argue that. Yeah. <laughs> all that happens in his head, Jim. <laughs> you gotta put this guy under. We don't have to be in a fucking nuclear waste <laughs> tank or something. Uh, Cameron optioned the rights to Key's book from a New York restaurateur named Sandra Arcara, who was looking to establish herself as a film producer. She owned the rights to this book. She was trying to get into the biz, and this was kind of her gateway into it. So he, he bought the rights from her. He started working on the script with Todd Graff, who was the actor who played Hippie in The Abyss. He's the one with the pet mouse, you know, Hippie. Yeah. Uh, and he, he's got some screenwriting credit as well. So they start working on uh, on adapting this book into a screenplay. And their script, which was called The Crowded Room, still has a lot of the visual flourishes that are found in Cameron's sci-fi work. Uh, only this time, the science and set pieces take place inside the main character's mind. If you want to read about you know, the, the script to The Crowded Room, uh, there is a James Cameron website called James Cameron Online that has a, a really good kind of summary of it. Uh, it. I don't think it, I don't recall. I don't think it had the entire script, but it had like excerpts from it and, and a good summary of the script if you want to know a little bit more about what they were going for on that. Uh, but the crowded room, at least for James Cameron, was not meant to be. So spring of 1992, this is, you know, a few months after Terminator 2 came out, uh, Cameron, si uh, Cameron signed an unusual multi-picture distribution deal with Fox that basically gave him the power to put any movie he wanted into production without Fox's approval up to a budget of $70 million. Uh, and the deal allowed him to retain ownership rights of the copy uh, of the copyrights to his own films. That's crazy for one thing that he can just basically green light any movie he wants as long as the budget doesn't exceed seventy million dollars, and he owns the movie. Wow! Yeah. yeah. Uh, in exchange, Cameron's own production company, Lightstorm Entertainment would have to shoulder any overhead cost as well as take responsibility for any budget overages, which they had planned on being able to do by selling the foreign distribution rights to the film uh, because the, the deal with Fox was only for domestic distribution. So if it went over $70 million, they had to cover that. That's a, an insanely good deal for a director. Yeah, uh, Usually a studio will acquire the worldwide rights to a film. They'll pay for the whole production or they'll bring in some other outside parties to help finance, uh, but then they own the movie outright. You know, it's their movie. Hmm. Uh, but this deal, and of course, Cameron's dealt with not owning the rights to his own property with the Terminator and you know, everything that that entailed. Uh, but this deal with Fox gave Cameron more control and ownership than most directors ever get. But it also gave him a lot more responsibility than most directors ever want, because that's a huge financial responsibility if you end up going over. And as we know from James Cameron, he has a tendency to go over budget. Yeah, I don't remember uh, if if I ever read like how many pictures, you know, it was just in multi-picture, but I, I think I read the whole deal was estimated to be like worth like, like $500 million or something yeah. in total. Uh, the crowded room, though, was not part of this deal, but it was still in the works with a modest budget. Uh, but then after a few days after Cameron's deal with Fox was announced in the trade papers, 
Sandra Arcara sued Cameron, saying that she'd been cut out of the pre-production process on the crowded room, and she refused to finalize the deal unless her fee was increased from $250,000 to $1.5 million. Though speaking to the Daily Variety, she said that Cameron is, it's a quote, is a much more powerful director and has a lot more clout now. He's not the same person he was when I brought him the project. So she's essentially saying that she's taking advantage of Cameron's success by demanding more money. She's like, this guy's worth a lot of money now, so I'm going to ask for more. And to say that in a fucking newspaper is insane. Yeah, me. right. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, what the fuck are you doing? This, uh, you're... this couldn't go bad at all. <laughs> I guess you probably, I don't know, like maybe maybe she's just assuming he's like, oh, I've got way many more millions than that, so I'll just give it to you. But Well, that's not how it worked out. So Cameron dealt with her demands in his typical way, saying, and this is another direct quote from Cameron, I don't negotiate with terrorists or extortionists. So I told her to take a flying fuck and collapse the project. <laughs> and and she that, did take that flying fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that statement, the crowded room was essentially dead. Uh, Arcara would take the rights uh, or would take the project to other studios uh, where various director actor combinations were discussed throughout the years, uh, including David Fincher and Brad Pitt. Uh, Steven Soderbergh and Sean Penn, Danny DeVito and Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Joel Schumacher and Colin Farrell. But none of these projects ever got off the ground. Although there is that actually... DeVito reference that I missed earlier in the yeah, notes. Yeah. I'm sorry, guys. I, sk- <laughs> I probably did skim the actors and directors there since none of, none of those matter for the for the project. Yeah, but it's interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting little addendum. Well, I wasn't trying to knock your notes, story. Justin. I apologize. <laughs> I wasn't saying you, what you put didn't matter. I was just trying to. No, he's just knocking my intro, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. more accurate. Okay. Your <laughs> intro, Todd. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there, there is actually an upcoming Apple TV uh, anthology series called The Crowded Room, uh, whose first season takes inspiration from the minds of Billy Milligan. Uh, it's coming from uh, Akiva Goldsman, who, you know, is whatever. <laughs> Tom Holland is playing the Billy Milligan character, although I think they're giving him a different name. And then Amanda Seyfried and Emmy Rolson are in the lead roles. And I'm not sure. They haven't announced a release date. They announced the series and stuff a while back. But uh, so I guess she finally did get paid for it. You know, what, two and a half decades, three decades later. <laughs> so, okay, you know. listen, we glossed over Akiva Goldsman. Let's not, you know, discount the fact he's mostly responsible for new trek which is pretty great yeah there's a lot of his stuff that isn't uh, yeah i was about to say there's a (laughs) he's got a lot of garbage on his (laughs) uh on his imdb i mean he but those things are somebody's favorite he did batman and robin he (laughs) did uh, i robot i am legend uh the fucking a beautiful mind you know and like you don't like a beautiful mind no it's schmaltzy and it manipulative and yeah no i do not like okay. well and and, and <laughs> according to uh, as we're film or recording this uh william shatner was at san diego comic-con just like yesterday and according to him uh new trek is also garbage so yeah well when you when you're william shatner you've earned the right to say that yeah <laughs> that's, that's what i said i was like eh. He should. He was also still like the original series is the best one ever. So season. I'm like, you should say that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so with this small character based drama no longer happening, Cameron's chance of doing anything other than the kind of big budget extravaganza that Hollywood expected from him also seemed to be dead in the water. Uh, he kind of felt an obligation to make his first movie under this historic deal with Fox a highly commercial one. 
So in the year and a half or so after the release of Terminator 2, Cameron was experiencing his busiest writing period since he had been working on uh, Aliens and Rambo simultaneously. Remember, we talked about that a few episodes ago. But Because in addition to the crowded room, he was also working on a treatment for a potential Spider-Man movie uh, and a futuristic film noir that he'd had the idea for since the mid-80s called Strange Days. Uh, And Cameron finally started... Uh, turning the strange days treatment or scriptment, which is, uh, I think, something Gary brought up. That it's kind of this longer novelistic treatment that he writes. Uh, he started turning that into a script at the urging of Catherine Bigelow. So you remember Catherine Bigelow and him were married, uh, but it wasn't long after T two that Cameron and Bigelow divorced, and Cameron kind of stopped trying to hide his relationship with Linda Hamilton from Bigelow and the rest of the world. That the two ended up, you know, getting married and were married for three or four years, I think. Uh, But Cameron and Bigelow remained on good terms uh, despite the affair. Bigelow would eventually end up directing Strange Days with Cameron serving as the producer. Uh, He actually did not end up writing the final screenplay because he got busy on some of these other projects. He handed it off to someone else, but it was based on his story. Uh, That film was released in 1995, but audiences didn't connect with it. It brought in like eight million bucks at the box office on a budget of 42 million. It was a major flop. Uh, Have you guys seen Strange Days? No. I don't uh, think a, I ever did see it either. It's a really good movie, I think, uh, despite that disappointing box office. Um, it's also like a disturbingly pres- uh, a disturbingly prescient film because it depicts a uh, futuristic Los Angeles where uh, this is, re- remember, this is 1995, okay? The, the futuristic LA that it shows, uh, reality shows dominate television programming. And this is in, in 1995 where the only reality show on TV was Cops. Like, so it wasn't a thing yet. So that's kind of Cameron predicting that. And the story is about an ex-cop who gets his hands on footage of a police beating a black man to death. Yeah. So, you know, again, 1995, granted, you know, the Rodney King thing had already happened at this point. But uh, yeah, it's really good. But it's like you watch it and you're like, oh, Cameron has a, is he like some sort of got some insights wizard yeah yeah how's he predicting this stuff (laughs) really wild uh because it predicts basically like body cams although i I think they're on their helmets in in that but uh, i would i would recommend that you watch it if you have a chance but uh like several other cameron movies it's not streaming and it's only available on an out of print dvd that's going to cost you like 40 or 50 bucks on ebay oh cameron yeah well (laughs) i don't know if that is his fault in this case but it's just kind of a weird thing anyway sorry for the side tangent on strange days but you know it's it's a fun james cameron movie if you want to watch a little something that he worked on that he actually didn't direct which doesn't happen very often especially at this time he's done like a couple of producer roles now yeah yeah he has and he'll he'll write other scripts way down the line like um battle angel uh alita uh stuff like that but at the time he wasn't really writing movies for anyone other than himself uh but over the years Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, they're friends. We mentioned that earlier. They would get together regularly to ride their motorcycles through the California mountains, uh, or they would meet for breakfast at a restaurant that Schwarzenegger owned, this like German food restaurant that he owned at the time that I think has since closed. But they'd meet for breakfast and they'd chit chat. And at one of these breakfasts, uh, the two they started kind of talking business. Uh, Arnold had just finished filming Last Action Hero with his Predator director John McTiernan, uh, a movie that had been plagued by bad buzz during the filming and would eventually become one of the summer 1993's biggest box office flops. Uh, and Cameron also knew that he kind of needed to come out swinging on his next film since it was his first under that big Fox deal. Mm. So they're kind of talking about what their next moves are going to be. 
Well, Schwarzenegger's brother-in-law, Bobby Shriver, Maria Shriver's brother, uh, had recently shown him a French movie called La Totale, uh, which is a comedy about a secret agent whose family thinks he's a boring old civil servant. Uh, now, I have not seen La Totale. Uh, I tried to find it uh, for this episode, but it's uh, it's kind of hard to find. It's not streaming anywhere. Uh, so uh, I wasn't able to watch it. But from what I've read about it, it, do- it doesn't sound like it's actually really an action movie uh, outside of a couple of short chase scenes. It's more of a comedy that, you know, is happens to be in the like spy world. Mm. Uh, but the potential of the character appealed to Schwarzenegger. Which is really interesting to me that Arnold would be attracted to projects like Last Action Hero and this back to back, almost as if he was kind of coming to terms with his own persona and sort of making an attempt to deconstruct it a little bit, uh, because both of those movies kind of do that. It, it really is interesting to I, I'd be interested to hear what he was thinking at the time, like what exactly attracted him to these two projects back to back. Well, at this breakfast, Arnold had actually brought along a copy of La Total for Cameron to watch. He gave it to him. Cameron watched it that night, and he was immediately intrigued. And here's what he said about it. I saw the film as an anti-James Bond, a reality check on the uber male fantasy. You might be able to travel, travel the globe and kill all the bad guys in clever ways and save the world from time to time. But as a man, you still had to answer to a woman when you came home. Bond himself is a pathetic eternal bachelor who will never know the truth of what it is to be a man, to be a husband and a father, which is why that fantasy works, especially for married men, because Bond has nobody to answer to. So thinking about La Total, the crux of that movie for him, for Cameron, was what if James Bond did have to come home and answer to his wife? Yeah, and he's done such a good job at pretending the whole time. Now his wife's ready to leave him. I thought that was interesting because like uh, James Cameron, you know, you mentioned he's in the relationship with Linda Hamilton at this point, and uh, he's also knocked her up. So like she she's about to have a baby. So by the time this is coming out, um, I think I think she ends up leaving him in pre-production. And then by the end of the movie, they're back together because mm-hmm. the 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 one of the articles I was reading was talking about like maybe maybe he's uh, autobiographical with this thing because he had had come up with a poster it was like even the best relationships have explosions or something but it 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 was said that he he had figured since he had learned more he's been divorced three times he had enough experience with marriage to do a film about the burden of family life so yeah (laughs) well he saw his version of la total as a big action comedy one done on an epic scale that's not usually seen in the genre and he would call his version of course true lies For 15 years, Harry Tasker's been leading a double life. Now, they're about to collide. What's your exit strategy? I'm gonna walk right out of the front gate. May I see your invitation, please? Sure. Here's my invitation. Yeah, that worked good. Right out the old front gate. (laughs) Give me back a second. What's the Tasker's office? Hi, it's Helen. Is he in? Harry's in a sales meeting, Mrs. Tasker. It's not like he's saving the world or anything. I see this is the problem with terrorists. They're really inconsiderate when it comes to people's schedules. Could you press the button for the top floor, please? Hi, Helen. Harry forgot something back at the office. Whenever I can't sleep, I just ask him to tell me about his day. Six seconds and I'm out. From James Cameron, director of Aliens and T2. True Lies. Now, for those of you who, for some reason, have not seen True Lies, uh, 
Well, it's hard to find. It's hard to find, (laughs) so it's understandable. But just know that we are going to get into spoiler territory as we talk about the production and uh, certain aspects of the narrative. So this is your warning. Spoilers abound. So as usual, Cameron entered the development of True Lies. Uh, on a time crunch, he's always seems to be slightly behind schedule, uh, even before he starts. Uh, Schwarzenegger's representatives were pretty anxious to get his next movie in the works to kind of help resuscitate his image. Uh, and by the time that Cameron had finished his treatment for Strange Days, he only had a few weeks to write the True Life script and kind of lo- lock it all down before Schwarzenegger's people said that he would have to kind of move on to something else. He can't wait forever, Jim, you know, like get us something or we're going to move on. <laughs> So to help speed up the process on the script, Cameron enlisted his old pal, Randy Frakes. Randall Frakes, you know, his old college buddy from, if you've listened to this series since the beginning, you know the name Randall Frakes. Uh, when they finished their initial draft, Cameron, who didn't have any real experience writing comedies, I wouldn't say any of the movies before this were funny um, in any way whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so he, he was worried that his script wasn't funny enough because he's trying to make a comedy. Uh, so he brought in a team of comedy writers to punch up the jokes. Uh, but Cameron was kind of unimpressed with the jokes they'd written. He only kept a handful of lines that they'd written, like the uh, you're fired you know, line. That mm. was one of the ones that these comedians had come up with. Uh, but that's one of the few <laughs> that he actually, it, the, the thing that that's one of the best ones that he thought that was one of the best ones to keep. <laughs> what were the other ones like i wonder yeah maybe he well, just thought that's something arnold would say it does sound like an arnold line yeah. but why yeah. why is he why is he fired he doesn't work for you you're not his boss so that the joke doesn't work on that level <laughs> did, did you see that. like who they actually got like the... no i couldn't find it they, they didn't say any names oh okay no, I'd, I'd be curious who yeah, it was i'm super curious know. as to bruce valanche probably <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> All of the twenty-five-year-olds listening to this show are going to have no fucking clue with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Uh, he, he said he also watched a lot of MTV with the sound off <laughs> while he was making the movie. <laughs> I thought that was Very weird. Very strange. With the Cold War over, you know, for the years the bad guys in Hollywood had been Russians. It was easy. Uh, they were kind of the catch-all villain in Hollywood. But with the Cold War, war uh, essentially over, I mean, or has it ever been over? Who knows? Uh, <laughs> but uh, Cameron was looking for another kind of villain. He didn't want to put Russians as his bad guys, so he picked a Middle Eastern terror cell operating out of Florida. Uh, and while researching the project, Cameron and Frakes got concerned that what they were writing, the uh, the villains plan to sneak nuclear weapons into the country, as they kept, as they were like researching, they're like, oh, this is a little like maybe too easy to pull off. Like we're, they were worried that it would give people ideas, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how to do it. So to kind of combat that, they, they decided they would make True Lies as silly as possible with like over hugely over the top action scenes that didn't seem realistic at all they were going for a very like over the top feel for this movie to kind of make like kind of to make it seem like everything including the villain's plan was preposterous it's it's weird because watching it again today that scene where the 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 main villain 
gives like a monologue to the camcorder, the guy's recording it. Mm-hmm. And that's another kind of prescient piece of writing from Cameron because this is pre 9-11, you know, this is eight years before 9-11. Yep. And the idea of a terrorist delivering threats, you know, in a grainy black and white video seemed kind of outrageous. This is not something that people had seen. Now we see it on CNN. You know, of course, he also yep. plays it for laughs because, you know, the camera runs out, Yeah, uh, which would be very hard <laughs> to do now, uh, which we can get into this later. That's a big reason they never made a True Lies 2 is because it's hard to make fun like it was then maybe, you know. Yeah. Uh, so he, he feels a little uncomfortable with that. But it's weird that at the time, like that felt like something he was doing that was part of that preposterous, outrageous idea uh, of this movie is to have this guy delivering this monologue on on a camcorder but now it's like oh yeah we've seen that how many times yeah (laughs) really weird so when Cameron was writing true lies he already had an actress in mind to play schwarzenegger's wife uh and that was jamie lee curtis he wanted jamie lee curtis in the role uh he had met curtis through catherine bigelow during the filming of blue steel which i think that's the one that she was filming when he was doing the abyss and they would go back and visit each other on weekends remember that uh so that's that's the movie they were making and him and jamie lee had kind of become friends the only problem was that arnold didn't see it he could not see jamie lee curtis in the role and true lies you know arnold brought this idea to cameron so this was kind of arnold's baby so uh, and also nobody tells arnold what to do (laughs) at this this point in his career nobody tells arnold (laughs) what to do but cameron you know he intended to honor arnold's choice they were friends arnold this was kind of arnold's project that he brought to cameron he felt that schwarzenegger should really have some input into who played the character and Schwarzenegger just didn't see Jamie Lee in that role. So Cameron begins a three month search for an actress to play Helen Trasker. Uh, one of whom even, and I couldn't find out who it was, but there was another actress that was really close to getting it. They even te- uh, like did a screen test with Schwarzenegger and everything. I saw Jodie Foster was really close in there. That would really? be a weird choice, but I, I mean, <laughs> but I think, she went I on to like do, she picked nail Nell or something at the oh, same yeah. time. Yeah. Hey, that win. I have a hard time. See, I mean, I love Jody. I think Jodie Foster is an outstanding actress. I just have really have a really hard time seeing her in that role. No uh, way, Harry Trasky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like Nell might be problematic these days. Is it? I don't know. Mm. The way we're I mean, talking about her, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. It's just she has her own language. I don't know. Uh, yeah, true, yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah, it's know. not. It's not like a handicap or. Anything. Yeah, she wasn't like mentally handicapped. She just had never been around other people or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's fine then. Yeah. So let's make fun of her. We're gonna make fun of her. Anyway, so one night during this whole casting process. Cameron's in Washington, D.C. He's scouting locations for the movie. He came back to his hotel and he watched a fish called Wanda, which is a a movie, a John Cleese movie that co-stars Jamie Lee Curtis. Really great movie if you haven't seen A Fish Called Wanda. It's hilarious. And it kind of shows you what kind of comedic chops Jamie Lee Curtis has. Uh, And he thought that Jamie Lee Curtis was perfect in the role because it's kind of a dual role. Uh, She came across as sexy, but also charming, fun, hilarious. Uh, And watching that, he he knew that he was right to begin with like she had to play helen but he still had to convince schwarzenegger so he comes back home to la he calls schwarzenegger who dropped what he was doing came over to cameron's office uh the description i read said he came over wearing like bright purple like bicycle shorts or something so whatever he was doing i guess involved working out or maybe that's just what he hangs out in (laughs) maybe he was auditioning to be the incredible hulk i don't know maybe Uh, (laughs) uh, cameron asked him he's like arnold how much do you trust me 
Arnold's like, of course, I trust you completely. And he asked him, he's like, no, really, like, how do you do you trust me? And once he was convinced that Arnold was being sincere, he's like, this has got to be Jamie Lee. She's she is Helen. This is her role. And and Arnold kind of paused for a long time. You can kind of see him clench his jaw like you see a couple of times in this movie where they're showing him in close up. But he didn't say anything. He just said, OK, like he knew at this point he had worked with Cameron enough that even though he didn't see it, he trusted that Cameron knew what he was doing. So we're going to talk about the striptease scene. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember that scene in the movie. In this Uh, movie? Yeah, there's a striptease scene in this movie. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I mean, all right, sure. All right. You mean the the scene that's been cemented in my brain since I was like whatever age I was at this time? (laughs) (laughs) So that that strip scene with Jamie Lee Curtis was written differently in Cameron's original script. Uh, In in the original script, Helen was to be fully nude, but filmed in silhouettes. You You only saw her silhouette. And it was actually Jamie Lee Curtis's idea to film it differently. So one day during pre-production, she came into Cameron's office and she said, okay, I want to do this differently. I want to go down to not fully new, but just in my bra and panties, but she wants it to be fully lit, uh, but, but kind of awkward, like played for laughs, right? So to make her case to Cameron, she took off all her clothes in his office and started performing this kind of klutzy burlesque dance in her underwear in front of Cameron's desk. So he's sitting at his desk. Jamie Lee Curtis is giving him a strip tease in front of him, basically, but playing it for laughs. Uh, but yeah, Cameron said that it was that day that I realized how cool my job really was. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, all right. He's like, you, you win, you win, well, Jamie Lee. <laughs> you know, I mean, not You're highly, I, highly convincing. Yeah. Well, not to, I don't want to gloss over this. Like, I mean, Gary said it, that scene is cemented and especially guys our age, like that scene is in our brains. Oh yeah. For better or for worse, that scene is in our brains, but it's, it's incredibly well shot. Mm-hmm. The lighting's perfect. Mm-hmm. And she nails that. She's incredible. Like when it's sexy, it's sexy. When it's funny, it's really, it's really, really funny. It's really funny. And to um, have those two big stars, like you have the biggest star in the world. Mm-hmm. He's sitting in a chair in the dark. Like, yeah. and he doesn't say anything. Yeah. And Jamie Lee, Cur- Jamie Lee Curtis is no slouch either, but she's doing this thing so well she's in this character so deep well and you see her arrive to that character in the course of the scene because she starts it off she starts off a little more awkward and then she like gets into it she like feels herself yeah yeah Yeah. i just think a lot of people can look at this as like an awkward thing but it's important like you said uh it's played for laughs and she she even petitioned it to Cameron for laughs. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. it wasn't, this is not a case of like, you know, this is not Harvey Weinstein. This is right. like, she came in and did this for Cameron saying, I think this is better. And well, this is a comedy that they're making and the scene wasn't written as a funny scene and she turned it into one. It allowed yeah. them to play the scene funnier than it had originally been written. I, uh, I saw also they, like say what you will like, and, and we're, we'll get into people's criticisms of this movie of it being misogynistic. Oh, and whatnot, you know, they but, got them. Uh, but this scene to me plays as like very empowering for her. Mm-hmm. Now, how she got there, there's some, you know, we can talk about the problems of how she got into the situation to begin with, right. but for her as a character, like she's feeling sexy in a way that she hasn't felt in a very long time in her marriage, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and you see her like come to that realization during the course of the scene. She plays it very, very well. well yeah. She's and, using her power here. Very in good shape. Yeah, she she's, <laughs> she does work out. 
Well, the, so. the other thing I was, and you know, I was just going to cap it off by saying like James Cameron, it's no secret. He has done some impressive things on film, but in terms of conveying character beats and story with this scene, which has no dialogue, this is incredibly impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love it. That's yeah, the I, feminist thing we were talking about too, just to, just to throw in there that everything we've talked about, every movie he's done so far has had powerful female characters so mm-hmm. to, i i don't think there's even any evidence to back that he thinks of women in a way that he would be doing this if he thought it was like belittling to jamie lee curtis to do sure. this film yeah 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 i mean but, she i mean the, the the screen was the the scene was in the script when she signed on to it so obviously she knew it was going to be there uh and actually when they blocked out the scene they, you know, in rehearsals and stuff, they did it while Schwarzenegger was in his trailer. So he actually wasn't in on the gag. They, he didn't know how the dance was going to go. So when she falls in the middle of the scene where she's on hanging onto the bedpost and falls yeah. down, he didn't know that was going to happen. So the moment where you see him like break yeah, character and get, get out up, of the chair and drop the him. tape recorder. Yeah, that yeah. was that was Schwarzenegger actually breaking character for a moment. Uh, but it works because Harry is also momentarily breaking character than remembering, remembering he's supposed to be this like French weapons dealer. Yeah. And so it works really well. But during the filming of the scene, like Arnold actually thought she, she had fallen. And it was getting up to help her. <laughs> but he, he he notices quickly that she's still in character because he sits back down quickly and then she pops back up and keeps going. Uh, it's really good. <laughs> it's really good. A really uh, good thing. Yeah. And, and Cameron, I mean, for, for as strict and crazy as he is, uh, I mean, even in the final tango that she does, like I, there's the part where she slides uh, onto the ground. Uh, mm. And she said that they had just rehearsed it so many times her legs were tired out and they <laughs> gave out on her during the take and she couldn't get back up. <laughs> and, uh, and she was mad at him at first because he decided to keep it. But then she was like, oh, no, that makes sense for her. Like, yeah, that, that works. But and Arnold, you know, he's 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 a married man at the time. He's got Maria Shriver, you know, for mm-hmm. whatever that means to Arnold. You know, you can debate that, I guess. So <laughs> well, <like> yeah, <laughs> but, uh, it's not much of a debate. It. I mean, <laughs> in one of the interviews I read with him, they asked him if uh, if she was bothered by watching him with the scene where Jamie Lee Curtis is stripping for me. He said that he had to reassure her. No, honey, I hated every hour I watched her strip. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Cameron, he was kind of, like we said, he was kind of unsure about the comedy in the script because he's not a comedy writer. So he actually, he, he made it a point to cast actors who were known for being funny, like Jamie Lee Curtis. I mean, she brought, she made that scene funny that wasn't originally supposed to be that way. Uh, so that he, And he did that so that even his written jokes, if they didn't work, he could fall back on these actors doing uh, some improvisational jokes, you know, and maybe those would work better than what he's written. Oh, yeah. So another one of the people that he hired because of for, for that very reason was Tom Arnold. So Tom Arnold at the time was a stand-up comic and he was a sitcom writer. He wrote on Roseanne. Uh, he was mostly known at the time as being the husband of Roseanne and then of Roseanne Barr. And um and and he would had had a recurring character on that show, uh, but he had very very little experience on the big screen other than like one or two very small like walk on roles, uh, but somehow his agent got him an audition with James Cameron. Schwarzenegger comes in to read with Arnold. Their chemistry was really great. Uh, Arnold's m- kind of manic performance played really well against Arnold's more brooding serious performance. Mm. But Fox Fox actually hated the idea of Tom Arnold in the role because of his baggage. Like he was just seen as being like attached so closely to Roseanne Barr. 
you know, like people didn't talk about Tom Arnold without talking about Roseanne. So they felt like that was a lot of baggage and they're, they're not wrong in that, but uh, cause he was, I mean, Tom Arnold was basically a human punchline at the time, oh, you yeah. know, uh, and not in a good way. Like, no, <laughs> uh, but Cameron stood by his choice and told the studio if they didn't approve the casting, he would take his film elsewhere. <laughs> That's what he told him for Tom fucking Arnold. He's yeah. willing to walk off. Now, it could be a thing like with the Sigourney Weaver um, contract negotiation where he was bluffing, but yeah. they, they it, it worked and he got his way and Tom Arnold got cast in the movie. Well, I was going to say, he didn't even expect to get a role. Like Tom Arnold just wanted to meet James Cameron from everything I read. Right, yeah. he did, <laughs> and he did those scenes, and uh, and Cameron just thought they had real chemistry. He said the one that uh, he said they were talking after the audition, and uh, Arnold, uh, Tom Arnold jokingly said about Schwarzenegger, like, uh, he's not that big. I think I could take him. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> and, what got him the role. And then <laughs> and that amused Cameron so much yeah. that he was like, all right, this is my guy. And yeah. uh and yeah, like you said, they they were gonna pull it, but he he threatened them, and uh, I think they've like been friends ever since. There's even stuff in there because like you know Tom Arnold's going through the divorce with Roseanne Barr at this time, I think, and she, although he's still working on the show, he's still working and, on the show, yeah, yeah, and uh, that scene where he tells the story about uh, his second wife taking everything when she left him in the ice cube trays from the freezer, that's a direct reference to his divorce with Roseanne Barr Cameron <laughs> says that they were having a conversation and he said that he told like Tom Arnold told him about she she took my fucking ice cube trays what kind of sick bitch takes the ice cube trays out of the freezer <laughs> and Cameron thought that that was so funny he put it in the movie yeah I mean I think a lot of Tom Arnold's dialogue in this is improvised uh, it feels it feels improvised. Like when he walks in and sees Harry's daughter and she's wearing the motorcycle helmet, he's like, oh, "I remember yeah. my first time being shot out of a cannon." Like that's that. There's no way James Cameron wrote that line. Like that's yeah. a Tom, that's a Tom Arnold line, you know. Yeah, and it's um, great too. It's great, and he's funny in this. And I am I do not like. I mean, Tom Arnold is uh, not great in most everything else like he's not he's not funny he's annoying and about everything this is easily the best thing tom arnold's ever done uh that's not a huge bar to clear but but i think (laughs) i think he works in this you see there's there's an earnestness about his character in in this like he doesn't seem like oh man jim barney would have been good in the role too (laughs) (laughs) you should have said that we're we're gonna gonna kill some terrorists we're gonna kill some terrorists you know what i mean Who else would who else would you have cast sitting in the truck and like giving instruction to John to to Harry and then turning towards the camera like know what I mean, Bern? (laughs) 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 Who else would you have cast in that role if Tom Arnold hadn't got it? Mm, Who else is uh, a good like movie like '90s action movie sidekick? And don't say Rob Schneider. Uh, it would have been. I, I was gonna i was see i was leaning more you have to have like was was chris rock doing anything during this time what about sinbad sinbad would have sinbad. been it you perfect. might as well have just kept the duo oh my of, god that's perfect arnold and sinbad <laughs> arnold and sinbad been what the rock and kevin hart are now yep yes <laughs> just being a series of movies <laughs> anyway uh where, where were we oh the cast casting so the rest of the cast was filled with, of course, James Cameron's old buddy, Bill Paxton, in Bill Paxton's finest role. I'll say that on record. Uh, it's my favorite thing Bill Paxton's ever done is Simon. It, he cra- Every line that he says cracks me up. 
every single thing he says in this movie. I love him. He's so good. Uh, you had Art Malik as the villain. Uh, I think his name's Aziz, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Which And Art Malik, I have not seen in a lot of stuff. Uh, he's Pakistani-born British actor. Um, he was, however, in The Living Daylights, the James Bond movie uh, with, with Timothy Dalton, which I think is highly underrated as a nice. James Bond movie. He's, nice. he's a good guy in that, though. He's a Mujahideen fighter who teams up with James Bond to fight the Soviets, I think. Uh, you had Eliza Dushku as Schwarzenegger and Curtis's daughter uh, in one of her very early roles, and Tia Carrere as kind of a secondary villain. Uh, we all know who Tia Carrere is because we've all seen Wayne's World. Yes. Two women I've loved at one point in my life. Eliza? Yeah, Eliza and, and Tia uh, and, and Jamie Tia. Lee. Yeah, and Jamie. Yeah, I mean, this is just full of. <laughs> if you're if you were growing up through the '90s, like you just would have been in love with with some of yeah. these people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you didn't mention Charlton Heston. Oh, um, I didn't, did I? What's yeah. his name? Spencer uh, Trilby or something? Yeah, like that? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've seen two origins for his character. I was, I don't know why I cared, but uh, because that, why does he have an eye patch? For one thing, why would well, you care? So glad you asked. <laughs> Um, according to one story, it was because Cameron had originally wanted to be involved in comic books and was a fan of Nick Fury. Well, that and, makes sense. He was working on a Spider-Man movie. And so. then yeah. he was supposed to be Nick Fury in this. But according to another story, uh, Charlton Heston had pink eye that day. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, on like the first days or was he only there to film for one day i don't i just said uh it said literally this thing i clipped out of an uh, article said he was not originally planned to have an eye patch he arrived on the first day of filming with pink eye and the costume department swiftly fixed the problem but he's got prosthetics on his face too because he's got scarring yeah yeah so they so would have had to create that. yeah so yeah, I think that's good bullshit. point good yeah. point why is it said also his character patch? was named trilby because that was his favorite hat I was wondering why he was named Trilby. Like, <laughs> like his cousin is like Jeff Fedora. <laughs> anyway, Todd, tell yeah. us if any anyone involved in this, any of these uh, cast members, happen to appear in uh, in, a in Star, Star Trek. Trek? Yeah. Oh yeah, we've got quite a few of them now. Okay. Uh, you know, normally uh, we've got uh, some some pretty big name players when we when we uh, talk about these, but uh, here on Cinema Shock, we give credit where credits due. I've got seven names here. um oh excuse me um seven uh yeah seven names here six of them are in uncredited roles in true lies (laughs) but uh but they are there and they were also in star trek so let's get started with uh manny perry who plays a bass player uncredited uh he did like maybe when arnold's running past the there's a lot of people in those yeah a lot of people in there's a uh, there's a band playing here yeah the jazz band uh but he was also in Star Trek First Contact in 1996, directed by Jonathan Frakes. He did some stunt work in that. And then we have uh, Richard Givens, who plays a Nigerian general, which is probably either in the opening scene or in the you know closing credits scene. Yeah. Uh, but he was in uh, Star Trek Insurrection in 1998 as Operations Division Ensign, also uncredited. Elliot Durant III, who plays the Hotel Concierge, uncredited. Uh, was in 26 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation from 1990 to 1994, 1994 as a Starfleet ensign. That's just how wow. he's credited. He's a red so, shirt. Yeah, this he's is, a red shirt, basically. <laughs> they, and this, and you said through 94, so this is like peak. You know, he he graduated from ensign oh, yeah, to basically like... <laughs> sorry, I got to ditch Star Trek for a minute to do True Lies. Yeah. 
Well, uh, he was also in an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It was season seven, episode two, Shadows and Symbols. That was in 1998 uh, as a Bajoran officer, uncredited. And then uh, we've got Max Daniels, who is the who is one of the bathroom terrorists, uncredited. Uh, did some stunt work in Star Trek Nemesis in 2002, and also uh, Star Trek Into Darkness in 2013, where he was uncredited for his stunt performance in that movie. Then we have Lauren James. Uh, he plays the man in the elevator, and I believe that's the gentleman who says, that's a fine animal. Yeah, yeah. They all got uh, <laughs> he's uncredited in this, but he was actually in two episodes of Star Trek, the original series. Wow. Uh, season one, episode two, Charlie X. He was the stunt double for William Shatner. Whoa, nice. what? Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and then uh, he appears again in season two, episode eight, I Mud. That was in 1967. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah, he was the stunt double for Richard Totoro, uh, also uncredited. And then finally, we have Armin Sajikian. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think the first K is silent. He is Juno Juno Skinner's limo driver. Ah, the one that gets shot in the head? The one who gets shot in the head. (laughs) He Now, this was interesting because he was in uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, Uh 1986. He's also in Star Trek Beyond in 2016. And I would have never pinned this uh, for him. He was in those movies as part of the orchestra as part of the um as part of the score for wait so he was a musician not not on screen yeah he was not on screen he plays the cello now the interesting thing about him when it comes to true lies is of course when he's driving across the bridge from the florida keys to the mainland of florida Mm -hmm. uh he gets he gets shot in the back of the head and dies the music that is playing when he dies was played by himself he actually no, scored his own death what is his name again armin uh sajikian it's k-s-a-j-i-k-i-a-n interesting i gotta look yeah. this guy up wow it's, he did... it's a fun story yeah wow he did the mu- he, did, he was in the music department on jurassic park and battle angel alita his, Alita Battle his, Angel, which is that Game guy Angel. on the show. His, res- <laughs> yeah. his resume is Wait, impressive. This is the guy with the like big curly hair and yeah. the beard. Then, like, the, every time I suit, looked at yeah. him watching it the first time, I was like, that looks like somebody like in prosthetics, like they're they're gonna do like a mission impossible, like do this, and it's really Tom Arnold under there. Yeah, like <laughs> there's something about him that just looks like this. Oh, that's not a real person. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah interesting yeah, that's fun that, yeah uh, I, I i thought that was really really fascinating a really interesting story so <laughs> that's really cool well, yeah. thank you todd thank you you gotta say and, that, and that's everybody from star trek yeah, the, the, it's not officially pop. over until you do that yeah <laughs> <laughs> so after being involved in two films back to back that had been seen as milestones in the new world of digital effects james cameron believed that the world of movie special effects was truly headed in a new direction and he intended to be on the forefront of the cgi revolution this is not a guy who's going to let this pass pass him by so to do so he thought he might just need a special effects house of his own so while he's th- kind of thinking about this he's considering this he, he visited his friend stan winston's studio uh winston who you know he he had done several previous James Cameron movies all the way back to the Terminator actually had done everything. Uh, He was a master of old school, practical effects, creature effects, things like that. But he had found himself involved in another milestone of digital effects when he did Jurassic park. 
And he felt that the future of special effects would be done as much digitally as they were done with prosthetics and animatronics. And maybe he thought maybe CGI could actually replace the type of effects that he had made his name creating. So seeing the direction of the future, Winston had actually installed 10 workstations with CG modeling software at his studios at Stan Winston Studios with artists creating CGI creatures for him. So he was kind of already working on this. He knew that this was the direction that the industry was going. So Cameron's talking to him and he pitched to Winston the idea that instead of 10 workstations, what if you had 200 of these staffed by some of the best artists in the world? Uh, Cameron was sold on the idea and he joined Cameron as the co-founder of their new special effects company, which they called Digital Domain. That that name, by the way, he he got based on an idea. He was uh, driving in his car and uh, he said, we need to domesticate the highfalutin digital effect. That's a quote. You know, you're talking about Jurassic Park, but he said so that even it can help out realism oriented filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Basically, in one interview I was reading with him, he was saying that basically if if you want a house in the middle of the cornfield, you can just grow the corn on the computer. Yeah, you just need the house. Well, as it turns out, uh, getting funding for a digital effects company from the guys who brought you Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park proved to be pretty easy. Uh, Cameron recruited Scott Ross, who had overseen ILM during Terminator 2. Uh, Cameron recruited him to run the day-to-day at Digital Domain, and the company would very quickly become the number two digital effects house in the world, right behind ILM, but their very first film would be True Lies. Scott Ross says uh, that Cameron (laughs) pitched it to him, and Ross said, computers can't do that. And Cameron said, I know we're going to make it happen. That's that's (laughs) always Cameron's go-to. Don't tell me. He's like, all right, fine. The word can't is not in James Cameron's vocabulary. It really is not. It's not. If it it doesn't exist yet, he's going to figure out a way to make it happen. Yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like you mentioned, he he found funding uh, like IBM went all in on this and uh, pitched pitched in the money for it. There is a, uh, another person we need to talk about here and that's uh ray sancini a woman named ray sancini so sancini and cameron they first met when uh when if you remember on i think it was our terminator 2 episode yeah uh cameron uh was getting on the carol code jet on his way to the can the con film festival in 1990 remember where he had like they'd been waiting on him for 20 minutes he plucked his script out of the printer and ran to the ran to the plane well she was on that plane uh she was actually an executive at carol co at the time, who had the task of uh, escorting Cameron after the festival from France to Carol Coe's studio in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, which is uh, uh, where it used to be Dino De Laurentiis' studio. I think that's where, you know, Dawson's Creek got filmed, Ninja Turtles, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but because Car- Carol Coe wanted him to look at this place as a possible filming location for Terminator 2. So after their flight was delayed, the two ended up experiencing, I read about this in that uh, The Futurist, the Rebecca Keegan book, uh, they, they started experiencing what Keegan called uh, an upscale version of planes, trains, and automobiles, which involved uh, them flying on five airplanes, one of which was the Concorde, uh, and a couple of very long cab rides. About an hour into this journey, though, Cameron turns to Sanchini and confesses that he has no intention of filming in North Carolina, having hated his experience filming in the South when he made the abyss, which you I blame on. I got to blame the Gaffney goats, you know, <laughs> that's it. His that damn Gaffney street gang <laughs> still uh, wreaking havoc to this day. So he Why was, do we not have merch with the Gaffney, the goats, Gaffney goats? goats. <laughs> we, that's a good idea. 
that's quality. <laughs> uh, he was basically just humoring the folks from Carol Co. You know, by by doing this, which uh, is hilarious because there's no telling what it costs to get on all those flights and everything. Uh, but the trip wasn't a complete bust because the the two, him and Sanchini, they hit it off and they became friends. So a couple of years later, Cameron hired Sanchini to help him put together the financing for Digital Domain uh, when he and Winston were kind of trying to get it off the ground. And she ultimately raised $15 million from IBM, uh, who took a 50% stake in the company and provided most of the hardware for them to get it started as well. So fast forward a little bit to the uh, to the pre-production on, on True Lies. Now, uh, first, a, a little bit of a caveat, I would say. Uh, I don't like to talk a ton about the financial side of making movies. Like, the, I mean, not... I, we talk about what they cost and things like that, but the idea of like how funds are raised and things like that, we'll mention it when it's uh, relevant to the story, but we prefer, or at least I prefer to mostly discuss the creative stuff because that's quite frankly, just more interesting to me. Mm. Uh, financial deals can be boring <laughs> when you start talking about them. Yeah. Uh, and often they're very, very complex. Like Hollywood, Hollywood accounting is very complex, but sometimes they are integral to how the story, uh, to, to the story of how the film gets made, right? Uh, and that's the case with with this as well, with True Lies. As I mentioned earlier, uh, that part about how, you know, Lightstorm had planned to cover the overhead costs on the films they produced for Fox uh, by selling the foreign distribution rights, which is a great plan if it's executed correctly. Uh, unfortunately, on True Lies, it was not executed correctly. The flaw was that uh, the way the financing was planned on True Lies, none of the funding from Fox or any of Lightstorm's foreign partners on the film would kick in until there was a completion bond in place, uh, which is basically a written contract that guarantees that a movie will be delivered on time and within budget. Uh, but there weren't any bond companies that would cover True Lies without a detailed budget. So what this basically means is that Cameron needed to be far enough into pre-production uh, having bought the rights to the story and hired the actors in order to have the bond issued. But if the funding is based on the bond and the bond is based on work that requires funding, the project can't move forward. It's, it's a catch-22, like he's stuck. So in, sh in, in short, Cameron's team at Lightstorm had fucked up royally. They should have secured equity financing first before selling off the distribution rights. And instead, they did it kind of backwards, meaning that Cameron was now committed to make a movie with one of the biggest stars in the world, and he had no money to do it, and he had nothing to sell that would help him raise the money. So what does he do? Um, he fires someone. He fires Lawrence Kazanoff. Kazanoff was the producer that he put in charge of Lightstorm when he founded the company, and Kazanoff had been the architect of the bum financing deal. Uh, so he gets rid of Kazanoff and he asked Ray Sanchini to sort out this mess for him because he, he was impressed with the way he, she had handled raising the funds to get digital domain off the ground. So the first person that Sanchini goes to is Peter Shernan. Peter Shernan is the new head of Fox. He's the guy who had replaced Joe Roth when he left Fox to go work for Disney. Uh, I think we mentioned that in our Terminator 2 episode. But uh, remember, though, Fox was originally committed to only a portion of True Lies budget. Uh, but Cameron and Sanchini convinced Shernan to be the film's primary financer, uh, which did away with the need for a completion bond because they didn't have all these other companies they're having to work through. But in exchange, the studio took over worldwide distribution rights for True Lies 
and two of Cameron's future films. They had first look at his next two films. Those two films ended up being Titanic and Avatar. So I'd say the deal worked out pretty well for them. (laughs) And this ended up being the beginning of a very long and lucrative relationship between Cameron and and Chernin. The two got along really well. Uh, If you read quotes from Peter Chernin, he's he's like, yeah, Cameron, I like him because he's smart and he doesn't bullshit you, which is rare in Hollywood. (laughs) So after this mess is all sorted out, Sanchini stepped in as the new president of Lightstorm, and the company reverted to a more traditional production company model, which is where, in the case of a filmmaker-led company, uh, they're relying on a studio to finance their films. Uh, Here's how Cameron describes it. Uh, Quote, it's a comfortable arrangement that works like this. I propose a movie which they know will cost a lot. They whinge and cry that it costs too much, but they say yes because we made money all the previous times. Then I make the film and they whinge and cry and say it's never going to make any money. And then it does. And then we start the process all over again, which is a pretty good way to describe his entire career. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I saw something with like John Landau, Fox's senior vice president of feature production at the time. He was just like, he, he, he did say Cameron was very good about once they were through with the logistical discussions that they knew that they weren't on schedule anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. he was, he was, he was ready for that. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, actually, in an interview I was reading, he said that what was cool about it is the actors were just prepared. She said, quote, when you make a deal with Jim's company, they don't hire you with an outdate. She said, <laughs> it was uh, made very clear to me in an unspoken way that you should not make plans for a last day of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, don't don't go ahead and book your next movie quite yet. Yeah. yeah. Well, filming on True Lies began in August of 1993 in Santa Clarita, California. Uh, the first action sequence on the schedule was uh, a, the bathroom shootout. That's one of the, I get kind of one of the smaller scaled action scenes in the film. And it took less than half a page of script and was budgeted to take one day to shoot. So a couple of days, exactly a couple of days, two days before the crew was set to film the scene, Cameron walks onto the set. And he felt that the set was a little too small. Uh, He wanted a bathroom three times as big and he wanted it rigged so that there would be water spraying everywhere and lights strobing. Uh, But unfortunately, this was the first time that anyone on the crew was hearing of this (laughs) and it required the entire set to be redesigned and rebuilt. And this is something we've mentioned before where Cameron always has these great ideas and sort of expects everyone to already know, like he's like they read his mind. Mm. Uh, I feel like he's maybe sometimes not the best communicator to his crew of what his ideas are. He knows. And so you've just got to like go in trusting him. Yeah, but he doesn't tell you ahead of time all the time, you know. Uh, Once they did start shooting, the bathroom scene, which was again slated for one day took five days to film uh which kind of set a precedent for the rest of the shoot uh not to mention every other movie that james cameron's going to make after this uh one of the new additions to cameron's crew on true lies was a cinematographer named russell carpenter uh they had actually met back when car back when uh cameron was interviewing potential dps for the crowded room because he was going to shoot that on a small budget he wanted a non-union guy because it was going to be a small budget and that's where they they originally met uh carpenter He'd been in the business for a few years at this point, but if you look at his uh, his filmography, he's mostly working on lower budgeted genre movies like Critters Two. <laughs> you know? uh, his nice. biggest claim to fame before True Lies was probably The Lawnmower Man, Pet Cemetery Two, or John Woo's Hard Target. Those were probably the three biggest movies he had made before this. None of which are like huge blockbusters. You no, know? but they're fun. They're fun. I mean, yeah, yeah they're fun. <laughs> but he he and Cameron got along really well, but. Once he settled in, he was subject to the same merciless management style that the rest of the crew endured. Mm. Uh, one of those days, uh, 
came when they were they were screening the dailies, you know, at the end of the day. They were watching a scene where Schwarzenegger returns home and looks at himself in the mirror. And when the reflection, when the scene came up, his reflection was too dark. Uh, Carpenter, you know, he makes a note for himself to lighten it up in the photo lab. But when he looked over at Cameron, Cameron was like, had his head in his hands, like shaking his head. It, this happens throughout the screening. Uh, Cameron says, I've got the highest paid actor in this or any parallel universe, and I can't see his eyes. So after this happens a few times, a few other shots go by, Cameron is visibly getting angrier and angrier about what he's seeing. And he just start, he just screams, where did you learn to read a light meter? Well, Carpenter thinks like, oh, I'm fucked. You know, like this guy hates me. I'm going to lose my job. He goes outside, calls his wife, tells her that, hey, I think I'm going to be fired. I think this is the last day of this job. <laughs> uh, he's like pacing around the parking lot. And he looks over and there's a few other Cameron regulars, like members of the crew watching him. And they're laughing. And he's like, well, what the fuck, man? They're, I'm about to get fired. And these guys are laughing at me. Uh, but they told him. The, he walked over to him and they tell him, they're like, he does this to everybody. Every cinematographer who's ever worked for him have, have gone through this. You know, there's some people that are like this, by the way. I will not name names, but I have literally hold, heard owners of companies. I, I've, I've had one that I may or may not have a relationship with literally tell me, sometimes I want to make people eat shit for a minute just to see how they're going to handle it. Yeah, see how, they're, <laughs> see how they work under pressure. Yeah. yeah. And, and to see if they're going to be a diva about it and yeah. to see if they're going to be a prick and to yeah. see how their attitude is, if they're going to try to work harder or if they're going to be like bitchy. And so uh, I guess that's a thing. That's a, that's a management style. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, Russell Carpenter actually called Michael Solomon, the guy who'd been Cameron's DP on the abyss. Uh, he wanted to see if this was true, that every cinematographer was treated this way. And he knew Michael Solomon and Solomon said, did he use the line, where did you learn to read a light meter? <laughs> that's when, that's when uh, Carpenter knew that he was work that working for this guy was going to be an endurance test. Like he was in for a ride, but he didn't get fired. Uh, you know, I think Gary mentioned it on the last episode. Like Cameron doesn't fire guys. He, yeah. he, he doesn't You're fire You're going to suffer through till the end. <laughs> in fact, he would actually, Russell Carpenter is actually going to return to work for Cameron on Titanic, for which he's going to win an Oscar. And he's also currently serving as the director of photography on Avatar 2 and 3. So the two clearly have continued this business relationship together. Mm. Uh, but it was a, it was a rocky start. <laughs> uh, one of the biggest action set pieces in True Lies comes in its third act, uh, at the very end of the movie, where Schwarzenegger's character flies a uh, Harrier jet hovering near a Miami skyscraper. Uh, to to convincingly pull this off, Cameron recruited John Bruno, who was the special effects supervisor who had won an Oscar for The Abyss. John Bruno, we've, we've mentioned him, I think, a couple times on this series so far. Uh, so. The production had actually managed to talk the U.S. military into letting them borrow some actual Harrier jets. Because uh, th those flybys you've seen where the jets fly by or going by that bridge, those, those are real Harrier jets. Those oh, yeah, not CGI. Yeah. Those are real, real jets from the U.S. military. But they also use those Harrier jets um, to create a full-size mock-up out of fiberglass. Mm. They, would, they kind of figured, they figured to pull this off, they would have to mount their mock-up jet on some kind of motion base using a green screen background so that they could safely shoot you know we've got schwarzenegger in the cockpit while eliza dushku who's playing his daughter she's strapped to it hanging on the outside of the jet obviously you can't do this on a real jet uh and then that while they were filming some of the test footage john bruno made a sort of insane suggestion and that was why not put the plane and its base that motion base on the roof of a real skyscraper instead of in front of a green screen 
Well, this would mean putting the biggest movie star in the world and his 12-year-old co-star in a fiberglass model of a jet on top of an aviation gimbal 300 feet in the air in the middle of a major U.S. city. Um, which is crazy. But this is James Cameron you're talking to. James Cameron likes doing crazy things. Sometimes he likes doing crazy things, I, I, I think, not because he has to, because he could very much shoot a lot of this on a green screen and it would look just fine. Mm. He does it because he thinks it's going to look cool. Yeah. Like, or that it's, <laughs> that it's going to be cool to film. Like, this is going to be fun, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why he does some of this shit. So he starts thinking about this and he likes the idea more and more the more he thought about it. It would, it would eliminate the need for a green screen, but it would also add a new level of realism to the scene. Plus, you know, it's, it's going to look, it's going to be really fun. Like we're on top of a skyscraper, you know, we're hanging this thing from a crane. It's going to be rad. <laughs> like that, that's like the adrenaline junkie in him getting off on that. <laughs> so to pull this off, they found a building that was under construction that had a giant crane next to it. They built a rig to hang a camera crane under the construction crane, which would allow them to position the camera anywhere they wanted around the plane. And then the, and the crane could even be in the shots because the building that they're using in the story is also under construction. So it works out. So you don't have to like worry about the, the crane being there because it's supposed to be there. Yep. So once they were done shooting with the jet mock-up, the crew took it off its base and they were going to use, the, they were using the big crane to lift it down to the street. And Cameron, he's like having his lunch break or something. He's watching the crew do this and he's got, got an idea. He's like, huh, I wonder if we could just like strap the stunt doubles onto the mock-up of the Harrier jet and dangle it off the side of the building, spin it around with some taglines, shoot it from a helicopter, and then we'll take the lines out with, you know, digitally later on. That's stuff I think about at lunch. That's what an insane thing to like think about on a whim. You know, this is a, t- a typical James Cameron thing. Like, uh, man, man, that would be cool if we did that. Let's do it. Let's fucking do it. Uh, like, it, it. I mean, he does stuff like this. He does stuff because he thinks it's going to be cool. Um, we didn't mention it, but during Terminator 2, when they were filming the Miles Dyson house scene, uh, the windows were rigged to explode. Like when the, you know, when the, the, the bullets go through them, they explode. So they were rigged to explode. And one time during, while they were filming that scene, they weren't even filming. It was like in between takes and Cameron just decided to hit a button and detonate the, all the windows because he thought it would be cool. Like he thought it would look cool. So he just exploded <laughs> all the windows. So they had, had to replace them all because they weren't shooting or anything. He was just like, I just want to see what happened, man. <laughs> I just want to see it. <laughs> and this blows people's mind around him, by the way, because I mean, like I even, you know, with Jamie Lee Curtis, like reading stuff about how, you know, she wasn't even sure she had heard stories, but like the first little bit of shooting on this movie was just the uh, domestic stuff, like in the house, there was like a heat wave going through like Santa Clarita or something. And so they, they filmed a lot of the marriage stuff, like them in the house. And so she mm-hmm. was like, Oh, this is cool. I get to know yeah, Arnold like a movie. little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, whatever. And so we built it up and then the action starts. <laughs> she's like and then it goes ape shit and then she talks about that scene uh you were just talking about with the the harrier like on the building and then actually i've got the quote here she says the first time i saw that my jaw dropped it's a real harrier jet it's mounted on top of this hydraulic on a real building it looked like an upside down spider with all these legs moving up and down and they were up there for like three weeks with every piece <laughs> of equipment a technocrate a linear arm a power pad this is outrageous and it's flawless. And so she's even she's just like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> it's another day on our James Cameron set. Yeah. 
So after he has this idea to shoot the Harrier mock-up literally dangling from the movie with with his actors on it, uh, he canceled the rest of what he had planned to shoot that afternoon. He ran to the helicopter uh, while the stunt guys start putting on their rigging and start preparing for the stunt. And within like an hour, the lead villain stunt double was crawling around on the Harrier jet 30 stories above the ground in Miami. Jeez. So then he he had his helicopter pilot, Chuck Timborough. This is the same guy who piloted the helicopter in the, the chase scene at the end of Terminator 2, remember? Goes under mm. the overpass and over the overpass. Uh, that's his helicopter pilot on here. He's the uh, aerial coordinator, I think is his official title nice. on the film. Uh, so Chuck Timborough, he flew, flew Cameron, who was operating the camera, uh, around the dangling jet, kind of in like tight circles. You know, they're going around it. Cameron's got the camera on his shoulder shooting at himself. Uh, and that's an incredible piece of footage, I think. I think it is uh, one of the coolest shots in the movie in the entire sequence. Uh, rewatching it today, I rewatched it today after knowing how they shot it. And I, it was, it's still, it's very impressive, you know. Uh, but it's also one of the many reasons that Cameron's film was getting behind schedule and over budget because he's doing shit like this on a whim, which requires a lot of preparation and a lot of moving parts, you know. So, the movie's already over budget. It's way over schedule. Um, Roseanne Barr is calling the set saying, I want, you know, she's wanting Tom Arnold to come back and work on the show. Uh, you know, so she's calling, asking for him. Uh, it goes on so long that Bill Paxton was actually able to film his scenes and then go off and shoot an entire other movie before returning to True Lies for more work. Well, after shooting in Miami, the film moves on to the Florida Keys, which is where they filmed the most ambitious action scene in the film. Uh, which actually in the film takes place before the skyscraper thing, but it's the helicopter chase on the seven mile bridge where Curtis's character has to be pulled up from the roof of a speeding limo and dangled over the water. And that scene, it's a massive undertaking. And it's honestly like even watching it again today, like this is one of the most insane movie stunts I have ever seen. Uh, Knowing that it's really happening is is insane you know it required the helicopters uh, multiple two helicopters to fly low and close Uh, and Cameron also wanted he wanted two cameras on the helicopter you can shoot from different angles you know Uh, and Tim Burrow the pilot wanted a co-pilot in the cockpit because the path that Cameron wanted was so precise and because of course the flight included yanking a stunt woman through the roof of a limo just before the car plunges off a bridge at 70 miles an hour. This is a very, you know, it has to be incredibly precise. So we wanted a a co-pilot there helping him, which, you know, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But with two pilots and two camera operators, there's no room left for Cameron in the helicopter, but Cameron's not going to miss out on all the fun. So he, uh, he actually bribed one of the cameramen to sit on a picnic table on the ground uh, during the scene. And Cameron (laughs) operated that guy's camera mount. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Curtis's stunt double in this scene was a woman named Donna Keegan, uh, who has a, a very impressive resume. Uh, if you look at it, she's worked on films like RoboCop, Army of Darkness, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Like her, her resume goes on a, a mile long and she's worked on some incredible stuff, like a really one of the most impressive stunt for people like resumes I've ever seen. Nice. Uh, watching the scene from the ground, Curtis, she... She wanted it on the fun too, you know. Uh, they needed a shot of her dangling over the burning wreckage, where you know Arnold's holding her, her arm. She's hanging from the helicopter, and they fly over where the 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 limo has crashed. You know, it's a great shot. Uh, and Cameron had planned to get that in a studio with Curtis in front of a green screen because you're not gonna 
dangle your leading lady from a helicopter, right? <laughs> but, but Curtis, I know, what, I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> but Curtis sees this happening and she's like, she asked if she could do it. She wanted to fly. She wanted to dangle from the helicopter for her close up. So Cameron's like, hey, if you do it, I'll do it. <laughs> so, so they rigged Curtis with a body harness to the helicopter. And Cameron was actually cabled to the airframe of the helicopter. Uh, and he stood up. He's, he's, so he's standing on the skids of the helicopter, mm-hmm. leaning out at a 50 degree angle so that he can shoot downward handheld holding the camera on his shoulder so and if uh, jamie lee curtis actually posted a picture of this on her i want to say it was on her facebook it might be on her instagram too uh, just not actually within the last couple of weeks because the movie just had its uh 28th anniversary or whatever oh wow um so she she posted a picture of of her shooting the scene but from the ground where somebody had taken a picture and you can see james cameron is leaning way over and like shooting straight down and she's hanging onto the stunt guy's arm and that's really jamie lee curtis doing that you know as a helicopter's flying she's i mean granted she's strapped into a a harnessing rig but that's still incredibly dangerous for a movie Mm -hmm. star to do and for a director to be hanging literally hanging off the side of a helicopter uh like (laughs) uh to where like if his heart is at such an angle to where if it wasn't for his harness or his harness broke he's gonna plunge you know uh, 80 feet or whatever it is to the water below yeah. yeah she said according to jamie lee it was he mentioned it to her but uh she, well i'm going she, by her recollection in that recent facebook post so. yeah yeah i mean i'm just saying uh, this one interview she said uh, cameron asked her to do it and said and she said will you be there and he said i'll be shooting you and so they went up and uh so you know again like we talk about different stories like over time so but was 30 uh, years ago yeah yeah but she says that uh, we were there hanging out a helicopter door with nothing but seven mile bridge and lots of water and manta rays underneath yeah. us yeah she said she saw <laughs> manta rays and she talks about it in retrospect like it was like thrilling but cameron also says like her screams like when she's screaming in that scene it's a very quick shot but he's like i'm not sure how much acting was going on there like, <laughs> yeah i mean it- and of course, as they got closer and closer to the finish of the movie, Cameron got worse and worse or more and more Cameron. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> everybody says he was like on loudspeakers, ordering people around and stuff. This is this has been a thing I've heard about him. Like as they go, as you go on, like he speaks on loudspeakers and talks to the cast and stuff. He got used uh, to that during the abyss when he had a PA system that nobody else could use but himself. <laughs> right. Uh, his nickname on the set was apparently Mr. Microphone. Um, Tom Arnold uh, said, if you, if you make a mistake, you will hear about it loudly and in a very direct manner, um, loudly and publicly. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently he was even under Arnold's skin during part of this too. Like, uh, one day Arnold said he was, uh, James Cameron said that anyone who goes to the bathroom could just keep walking and never come back. <laughs> I mean, that's what if you have to pee <laughs> and Arnold said that's over the top. Yeah. He, he said, I know that he would rather pee in his pants than leave when scenes are clicking, but electricians don't feel as dedicated to their jobs. <laughs> right. as yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he tells another story too, that it's like inspiring. He said, uh, a quote from Arnold is like, there's one scene that blew me away about the guy. There was a particular action scene that required a weapon to be fired in a very tight area. I asked Jim about it and he said, you're right. Let's find out if that's safe. 
and he gets in the area and has the weapons guy fire it past his face a couple of times. Jesus. <laughs> he wow. said, the fact is, he has balls, man. He'll yeah. do anything. He'll do it. He will. So in that scene that Curtis is filming, you know, hanging from the helicopter, the uh, the guy doubling Schwartz, that's not Arthur Schwarzenegger in that scene, uh, <laughs> hanging from, hey, the guy hanging from the skids of the helicopter, you know, by one leg and one arm. Believe yeah. it or not, they didn't let Arnold Schwarzenegger do that. Uh, so <laughs> the guy who's doing it is uh, a guy named Joel Kramer, who's the film stunt coordinator. Uh, he had previously been, he, he's done a lot of stuff with Schwarzenegger, uh, but prior to this, uh, he had been Schwarzenegger's stunt double in several films, including, uh, listen to this list, Commando, Raw Deal, Predator, The Running Man, Red Heat, Twins, Total Recall, Kindergarten Cop, Terminator 2, and Last Action Heroes. So he's been working with almost everything that Schwarzenegger's done for like the last decade. <laughs> And we didn't discuss Not Kramer. A bad resume. <laughs> yeah, pretty impressive. Uh, we didn't discuss Kramer a whole lot during our T2 episode, except that you did mention him during your Star Trek bit because he mm-hmm. had done some stunt work on, on Discovery. Um, and his career, if you look at it, it is truly legendary. He's worked on some of the best uh, action films of the last 40 years. But any discussion of him does now come with a, a bit of a caveat. In January of 2018, so not, not that long ago, Elisa Dushku wrote a very lengthy Facebook post, which you can still read online, where she alleged that Joel Kramer had sexually abused her during the filming of True Lies. Uh, she was 12 years old. He was 36 years old. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details. You can read her account online. It is truly disgusting uh, what, what she's saying that he did. Uh, and she did tell her parents. She told her older brother. And she told a couple of adult friends who she trusted about the incident. Uh, and then one day while visiting the set, one of those adult friends actually confronted Kramer about it on set. Uh, and then later that same day, Dushku was injured in a stunt gone wrong on the Harrier jet, which resulted in several broken ribs. Uh, now, keep in mind that Kramer, as the stunt coordinator, is directly responsible for her safety. And this happens literally the day that somebody he finds out that she's told somebody about this. Uh, Kramer, of course, denied the allegations, as these type of dudes usually do, uh, though I, I cannot imagine what. Dushku could possibly hope to gain by making up a story like this, like 25 years later. Like, why would she make that up? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and and Jamie Lee Curtis has said that uh, she was aware of it several years before uh, Dushku came out publicly about it, uh, that she she had, t- had confided in her a few years ago. Uh, Cameron says that he was never made aware of the incident uh, at the time. But that had he known about it, quote, there would have been no mercy. And I feel like coming from James Cameron, that's probably pretty true. Remember, he's got his first kid by this time. So like, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the time of the interview you're talking about, he said now, especially when I have daughters, there is no mercy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I know that's not a fun part of the story of the making of True Lies, you know, but I don't think that we can ignore it. We can't overlook it. It is part of what happened on the set of this. Uh, and we do often like to praise stunt performers on the show because we think that they rarely get the credit that they deserve, but you can't praise Joel Kramer's work without also pointing out his abhorrent behavior during the filming of this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's disgusting. He apparently referred to her as like jail bait openly. Uh, it's, it's r- really gross. Like, incredibly gross if you go read her her account of it uh but i just felt like we i i hate that that story even exists but if we're gonna really get into all the you know warts and all account of the making of these movies we can't ignore shit like that you know mm-hmm. yeah it's fair and yeah. what's sad about it is i mean i mean 
not for him, I guess. Uh, he, yeah, he's, okay. <laughs> but um, I think both of them, I haven't seen anything out of them since like 2017. Like they're, they're both haven't been doing anything. Into, including her I, i'm not sure about her um, yeah i just i well i just literally like uh looked her up and i was like you know when is the last like elijah uh dushku thing let's see it's uh according to imdb it's like 2017 yeah. um like tv stuff but yeah wow. well i mean she she does have, have a production company over yeah so you're right doing, uh yeah. she she is okay so so she's had a couple of producer credits yeah. since then so but, she, uh, she might be doing more like behind the scenes kind of stuff she's also had a baby like last year so okay. yeah oh, so wow. you know so she she's uh maybe just taking some time off but yeah no no action was taken at the time because the proper people either didn't care or weren't told uh so Kramer continued to be one of the top stunt people in Hollywood all the way up to 2017. Uh, his last film credit was Blade Runner 2049, which was released about three months before Dushku's statement. Uh, his credit right before that was actually on Star Trek Discovery, but he has not worked since mm. and deservedly. So it's, it's, it's unfortunate that he got to work for another two decades after that without mm -hmm. anyone calling him out on his shit. You know, and she's had people you know for what it's worth like back her story like even yeah. her who was supposed to be her guardian at the time um come out Says and say that, that, that it was I, true they fucked up yeah yeah and that that she wasn't there for and 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 has said that like she she even heard the story around the time and tried to say something but people just like were writing it off and she just kind of felt not empowered to like push it further basically right and yeah so yeah, and she, and I read some statements from from her as well, and she kind of regrets, like she felt like I was supposed to protect her, and I failed, kind yeah. of thing, you know. So anyway, moving on. Uh, once Drew Lies finally wrapped production in March of 1994, uh, it was officially the uh, the second film in a row that Cameron had made that was the most expensive movie of all time, uh, with a budget of about 120 million dollars. Uh, it would get knocked off not long after that by. Uh, Waterworld, actually. He says, um, by the way, he was like in, in an interview around this time, he was like, it's not the most expensive movie of all time. Like Spartacus was the most expensive movie of all time, uh, adjusted, adjusted for today's yeah. dollars. Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah um, Cleopatra could be in the running, but yeah. But, <laughs> but dollar for dollar, $120 million is the most anyone had spent, which well, by today's it, standards is about $250 million or so, which is, you know, your average Marvel movie now mm -hmm. right yeah <laughs> for what it's worth i mean you know even even when it wrapped the thing was is like a, a lot of stuff i read about during this time was like it felt like filming was endless uh mm -hmm. like you know you you mentioned paxton working on another movie uh during their like tia career uh signed off for like seven or eight weeks work and she ended up cashing checks for seven months, they said. Yeah, I mean, yes. it, it filmed overall for like a year and a half or something like that, like an absurd amount of time. Yeah, uh, Cameron admitted at the time to like 130 shooting days, give or take a few, but second unit, occasional, unofficial first unit. Uh, the rumor got up to like 180 days. And, of actual uh, shooting days. Yeah, of actual yeah. shooting days. And uh, he said Fox was sweating bullets just like Mario did. Or no, this was, I'm sorry, from an insider. It said, Fox was sweating bullets just like Mario did. But what could they do? They wanted more pictures from him. And the dailies are great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. He well, people were also... always sweating bullets around these James Cameron films because they got so big. But it all 
they always end up paying off, you know. That that Richardson yeah. article I referenced at the beginning, he, he said that there there were weeks he was watching this after uh, just on editing. He said he was so meticulous on everything he did, and then it went for like weeks, and then there were dailies. And he said, and at the time he was writing that, Richard said he's like he's still shooting. He said Schwarzenegger just came back in. He's already on another movie, and he just quietly slipped out to shoot some more with Cameron. Yeah, and uh, to like get one last scene in. Yeah. Anyway, he had a quote from Tom Arnold saying, "I called Cameron a perfectionist once, and he said, no, 'No, I'm the greatest.'" <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> he he does not. Um, he he's not missing. He's not lacking in the ego department. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I guess the other movie that that Schwarzenegger went off to do would have been Junior. Right, that was his that was his movie right after oh, this. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. And then he did a racer, I think, after that. Which... This article, yeah, said he had slipped out and come in and shot like some extra stuff. <laughs> That's funny. Uh so well, it, it it ended up opening up at number one at the box office. It's opening weekend, uh, knocking that piece of shit Forrest Gump out of the top spot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it went on to gross over $378 million worldwide, making it the third highest grossing film of 1994, uh, which was behind Forrest Gump and The Lion King, actually was number one, I think. Huh. Um, it's an impressive amount of money, but it still fell sh- about $140 million short of T2's box office take, so it wasn't as big of a hit as, as Terminator 2 had been. Mm. And, and unlike Terminator 2, the critical reception was a little more mixed. Uh, Variety called it 141 minutes of extravagant fodder for an enticing three-minute trailer. <laughs> really <laughs> funny to me. Uh, but then others like the New York Times and Roger Ebert gave it positive reviews. So uh, I have a feeling, though, that there's a lot of James Cameron hate on the internet. We've talked about this in every episode, but I feel like this one gets more than any other one we'll see what happens when we get to avatar i don't know i feel like people like to hate on avatar in retrospect but people definitely want to hate on true lies no no i mean i think everybody uh feels pretty strongly about true lies being a great film they're also huge fans of james cameron there is like a small (laughs) subsection of the internet that that probably should use it now And I say a small subsection. I don't know. It it's all on Reddit. When you when you sort <laughs> reviews by lowest first, it, yeah, it just feels terrible. <laughs> Which is what I assume like Twitter does all the yeah. time. Like yeah. your regular feed is just like most negative first. Anyway, <laughs> let's see here. Uh, AZ two eighty three gave it one and a half stars. Says not Arnie's best work. I mean, <laughs> not it's not that's not inaccurate. <laughs> i just love that one it was it felt like an easy one to start with uh how about uh srpf she says uh one star i will never forgive james cameron for this Ooh, wow yeah. i'm sure he's hurt i'm building <laughs> yeah. <it>. sure. <laughs> sure he's think, begging he's begging for your forgiveness i was gonna say do you think he cries himself to see you anonymous person on the internet <laughs> uh jp says uh one star not our jp by the way who's appeared on the show i mean who knows though yeah who knows (laughs) uh my old man has this in his top 10 worst ever and he isn't wrong the first 90 minutes is so bad multiplied by the ultimate me too that last hour is frightening middle eastern terrorism man you're rooting for both to die i mean they decided that tom martle was going to be the number two in this movie Dot, dot, dot. Is that a shit joke? 
I, I think you should say like it's Tom Arnold. You already you already making bad decisions right from the jump. I think yeah. is what he's saying. Who does number two work for us? The uh, the other the second best Tom Arnold performance actually. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Conan the Cribber says, uh, humiliation and double standards. I hated this movie from start to finish. Warning, minimal plot aspects revealed. I thought the humiliation of his wife was atrocious. What a double standard. He's been lying to her for 20 years and she has coffee with another guy, so she has to sleep with a foreign agent to make up for it. Yeah, right. I thought the humiliation of the wannabe spy was also pathetic. Talk about a microcosm of absolute power corrupts absolutely. Morally empty. The action scenes were okay until the crappy helicopter scene. So he's trying to save his family, right? That's why he unleashes five million rounds into the fucking tower so that it'll collapse on his family. Crap film through and through. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Let's keep going. Kyle says, what star? There's no amount of Arnold riding a horse that can make me play with watching this again. I understand it's different times, but the 45-minute segment of the movie dedicated to the humiliation of Jamie Lee Curtis is one of the toughest watches I've ever witnessed. For a lack of a better analysis, it's gross. It seriously made me contemplate turning off the movie. Hmm. Serious. I gotta get. Let's go to this one. One and a half stars from uh, Leo, who says, my favorite part was Artie laughing while playing Thumb Wars. <laughs> he does make a crazy face yeah uh, he does it's very similar to his like total recall face uh, <laughs> my other favorite part is when he's like the bridge is out and the face that he makes during that oh man classic arnie i skipped any reviews that had clever titles by the way like true idiocy true garbage true oh. shit true you know all those <laughs> uh here's uh Pizzoa who says this is the worst film i've ever seen Never have I seen anything as dumb as this. I usually like, oh, wait, let me preface this by saying I'm only reading this because I hated it so much. It just, <laughs> Good. I follow a Reddit, a, a subreddit that's called I am very smart. And no. it's just anytime somebody's just being a pretentious fuck. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, never have I seen something as dumb as this. I usually like Swartz's films, and I accept the low level of reality in them as a rule that applies throughout his opus. I am known to like several films that are even less realistic, and in which the only link with the real world is the occasional use of gravity, like Lai Wong in 1991. True Lies in 94 is out of Schwarzenegger's style, and he badly lacks acting skills to break out of that style so that the whole feeling of this movie is like watching John Cleese in a film that is not funny, or like Leslie Nielsen in his black and white Canadian Mountie roles, as opposed to his later works with Mel Brooks. There is no need to go into details that make this film stupid, like lack of any aviation knowledge on the behalf of the writer and director, particularly absolutely no idea of how the RR Pegasus engine works. If I was to list all of the bad stuff in this movie, I would end up retyping its script. My advice for all Schwarzenegger fans is to see it because if you like him that much, you will have no trouble to forgive him this blunder. And also knowing how bad this is, you will appreciate his other films more. To all others, I suggest that you check your IQ. And if it has value below zero, then you should see it. If your IQ is higher than zero, you should not. Beware. Spoiler ahead. However, some satisfaction could be found in one scene where Jamie Lee Curtis is in her underwear and the fact that she wears short skirts and dresses throughout the whole movie. And she does have a pair of fine legs. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have never wanted to give somebody a wedgie so bad. In my life. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> what? Wow. what a son of a bitch. Like, what? <laughs> wow. So what a pompous bastard who thinks that they're smarter than everyone else. Uh, uh, yeah. I, that makes I me angry. That review so much. <laughs> uh, His entire opus. You didn't, you didn't even use the word opus. He's not even using these words correctly. <laughs> Oh, you'll love this review from Faisal. I, I love this. It was literally half star, half star review. Outstanding performance is the uh, subtitle of this review. This is really amazing movie of all time. Arnold didn't receive the Oscar for this that I really didn't like. I don't know how Oscars are selected. The movie for Oscar was selected once called Chicago. I think this movie is the worst of all. If they keep on selecting this kind of movies, then they have to close the Oscars in the future. True Lies should have got Oscar for Best Picture. It shows how Arnold saves her wife and daughter from the terrorists. Instead, he traps himself in the game. The performance is fantastic. Its special effects are awful. I have watched four times in the cinema. James Cameron is really hardcore director who didn't receive Oscar for this movie. Wow, I, uh, there are Ooh. so many things wrong with that review, <laughs> uh, and, and including giving it a half star when you clearly liked it. That felt like one of those like we we uh, we had an AI read a bunch of letterbox reviews and then write its own review. <laughs> right. <of Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Maybe you're right. Holy shit, I didn't think about that, but that could have one hundred percent fit in. <laughs> Uh, how about Tom here? He says half star. Now I'm fully aware of my bullying hate of everything, James Cameron, but. Going into a rewatch of True Lies, I actually thought it would be silly fun, if nothing else. Turns out I was wrong. Oh, God. I was so wrong. <laughs> Each and every scene in this atrocity belongs on the cutting room floor. How any editor worth their salt would think any of this should be made public is beyond me. I swear to God, it really is. It read like a fever dream of a deranged mind of Jimmy. And that's fine if he would just let it stay in bed with him fuck you fuck all your avatars i hope they never see the light of day <laughs> first of all you can't leave every every bit of footage on the cutting room floor <laughs> yeah you don't have a movie that's true that's well, it fuck you and fuck all your avatars <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be my new go-to insult for anyone i i, I like that fuck all your avatars <laughs> Uh, this is a half star from Nut the next Newt. cinema shop nasty t-shirt. Movie. Yes. <laughs> a nasty movie that gaslights its audience into a selfish and cruel power fantasy sold as a wacky action comedy. All the mugging for the camera and zingers are wildly out of place and none of the jokes land except as bizarre artifacts of the 90s movie trends. Double takes falling down, bug eyes, a bellhop diving out of the way of a horse. This movie never earns its camp because it isn't harmless and silly. It is actively mean. I mean, if I were the bellhop, I would jump out of the way of a horse, though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, can't blame I don't him. know. The horse seemed was fun. Yeah, but he's going over you. I, I do still get a giggle when uh, when he's talking to the horse after oh, yeah. the whole thing. What kind of police are you? <laughs> yeah. What kind of cop what kind are you? Of cop, what kind of cop are you anyway? What star for Miranda? The spiritual prequel to Avatar. American imperialism is nothing but a tool for progression of a romantic plot. The characters are vacuous, but Artie is Artie. 
A lot of wildly unpredictable incompetence mapped onto the Arabic language. All they do is yell, yalla, and look frantic. Their unpredictability translated as threatening. Jamie Lee Curtis was also done dirty. Overall, a pretty sickening film. Ugh, sickening. Uh, <laughs> all right, just, just a couple more. Uh, Annabelle says, utterly psychotic. The movie should be banned, put into the Museum of Tolerance. Straight men actually wish they could catch their wives cheating because they want, most of all, to preface... Wait. Because what they want, most of all, is, is a preface to guilt and torture her into total submission. This movie says wives are the real terrorists. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Seth says, <laughs> Seth says one star. Wow. This does not hold up. It manages to hate, exploit, blatantly fear women all at once. Jamie Lee Curtis, Jamie Lee effing Curtis is giving nothing to do besides dance in her underwear and drop guns and wave her arms daintily. We might get moments of observing her emote, but never does it even attempt to acknowledge those emotions. And the whole ordeal is even sadder and grosser in light of what we know about stunt coordinator Joel Kramer's conduct with 12-year-old Elias Dushku. I expected this not to hold up and was still somehow surprised by the heaping pile of toxic alpha male filmmaker that this is. Super gross. I mean, here's the thing. Saying that Jamie Lee Curtis has nothing to do, you, you clearly weren't paying attention because she is incredible in this. And the scene prior to the striptease scene where she's being interrogated, uh, regardless of what you think about, again, how she got to that point, her performance during that interrogation scene is absolutely incredible. Yeah. She I goes agree. from being scared to being like when when they ask her about Harry, she gets really like almost like emotional and she gets she she kind of softens and then she gets mad saying, I just want to go home with my family. She goes through so many emotions during that scene and she plays it so well. That scene is it, incredible, I think. And yeah. I think I think it's one of the best scenes she's ever done. Uh, like she is so good at that. So saying that she didn't get to show any emotion during this, like fuck off. You didn't pay attention to the movie. Yeah, um, the only other review I had was uh, from Pigray. She says, uh, one star, God, men are terrifying. I mean, that's, what she that's said. true. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, yeah. Well, allow us three white bearded men to tell you to all tell how you you're otherwise. so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there was some controversy surrounding the film when it came out. Uh, a lot of critics, like like uh, like a lot of these reviews you read, uh, called it sexist or misogynistic for its treatment of its female characters, especially Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, while a lot of others criticized its depiction of stereotypical Middle Eastern villains, saying that the film conveyed strong anti-Arab or anti-Muslim prejudice. And in fact, the National Council on Islamic Affairs actually boycotted the film and picketed theaters that were showing it. Uh, so there was controversy even back then around it. And that's not necessarily like unfounded, I don't think. Um, I, I think any discussion of this film, you have to kind of address that stuff. Like, uh, is the movie misogynistic? Well, its treatment of Helen in the middle section of the film is very weird. Um, Schwarzenegger's character uses all of the might of the U.S. government at his disposal to just kind of fuck with his wife's head, which is kind of fucked up, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. She's kidnapped at gunpoint, then she's gaslit into thinking that she's a double agent working for the government, and then she is 
essentially pimped out by her own husband in an, in an attempt to add some spice to his marriage. Like that's, if you think about it, it's kind of, it is kind of fucked up. I can see how people find that offensive and I genuinely can't find a way to defend that really. Uh, Cause I think it is, I think it is really weird, especially watching it in 2022 eyes. Like it does come across as, as a, a very bizarre not just misogynistic, but just like weird, just like this is weird, you know, um, it is weird. But I will say this about it. I mean, my my only defense of it would be is that the movie tells a story that he does pull some shit with her, but she's very good in it. He doesn't put her in a predicament that he thinks he's not going to get her out of. So he is very macho alpha male, right? Sure. Like yeah. he, he is that guy. But he's also an idiot. I mean, it, it definitely tries to show you that he's sort of a dummy about the way he's acting about it. And that she's really good as a spy. And he's really bad at being just a regular dude and being a husband and a father. Like, right. He's really right. Stupid he's when it comes he's to being stuff. a dumbass. I feel like the movie does know that. Like he's yeah. he's doing this stuff and it, it's funny to him or it's fun because he's teaching her a lesson but I don't think that he's actually ever putting her in a situation that he doesn't think he's in control of sure. for what, for whatever that's worth. I get yeah. that part. Um, but it's still psychological torment for her. She oh, oh know. sure. <laughs> and and <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the only other credit I could get. Yeah. So I, I, okay. You're right. I can't defend everything about it. It's not the way that anyone should behave. Well, here's the thing. Uh, if I did that to my wife, we would have a divorce. Yeah. immediately afterwards yeah. right, like, <laughs> right. Like, if you do if you do that if you did any any sane wife like her husband puts them through that and sorry that marriage isn't you didn't just add some spice to that marriage you just ended the fucking marriage like that is yeah. what it's worth by the end that, of that, it that she's is, no just, court's uh, gonna she, side she's with also a secret agent too like she's like i'm a badass too so yeah go fuck uh, i mean the thing is that but, that section of the film is incredibly entertaining though you know, like as, as weird as it is, it's very entertaining, largely due to uh, one Bill Paxton's performance, who is amazing through the yeah. whole thing. I would say um, that if you ever found your significant other potentially cheating on somebody else, if there wasn't a part of you that would potentially want to uh, torture them a little bit, I, yeah. you know, he just has the cathartic element of it. Yeah. He has the ability to do it. So he yeah. does it. And uh, I'm the whole not time saying I'm... it's justified. I'm saying no. that uh, it's a joke. It's trying to be a joke. Yeah, it it's is not. It's uh, it's not. Well, I'm part saying, of the problem I, I, I absolutely with... understand where people are coming from when they criticize that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, they're not. They're not wrong. But but I think a lot of people also think that like the scene with Jamie Lee Curtis doing the striptease and stuff like that or an issue that that was her fucking idea. I mean, yeah. I know the striptease was in there. I don't think Jamie Lee Curtis has no problem with this movie. Jamie Lee no. Curtis, I don't think, feels like she was forced into anything she didn't want to do. She was having a good time. I, I mean, I mean, as far as anything we know. Um, I mean, she she talks about it fondly, you know, and and Jamie, we know Jamie Lee Curtis's persona. Um, she is a, a fairly a very liberally minded woman, and uh, I she doesn't have a problem with it. Now, uh Granted, her she could her perspective could be different because she's involved with it and she's proud of her work and and she deserves to be proud of her work and it she is incredibly good. Like I said, I think this is some of the best work of her career. And I mean, she she has this ability to go from dorky and frumpy to sexy at the drop of a hat, and it's pretty incredible. Yeah, and her comic delivery is incredible. Oh I yeah, think. like she's she's very very good in it. There's a lot of good stuff. Um, it's just 
you know, that in that whole section of the film, you know, I was watching it and I was like, this is a wild misappropriation of government funds. Like these are my fucking tax dollars are paying for Arnold to fuck with his wife like this, you know, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Arnold, but again, it's Arnold a, it's is a, a goof. Dumb movie. Yeah, he's he's being insecure. I just I don't know. I, I don't think that the movie is not unaware of the fact that he's being a goof. Sure. Like he's that he's being stupid for the things he's doing i think part of the weird thing though is that i i don't think that cameron does comedy very well uh a lot of the scenes in this that are funny or supposed to be funny come across a little bit weird like they don't they don't come across like he does not have he he has he's shooting comedic scenes through the lens of an action movie guy you know which is very different and it's edited like an action movie guy so like certain moments like when the terrorist sees um the harrier jet coming up and he does a little bug eye double take like it's like it feels out of place a little bit mm-hmm. and i think that's part of why people see this movie uh, and they, they have a hard time seeing it as goofy because it's not played goofy like it might be written that way but it's not edited and shot that way it's edited and shot like a straightforward action movie yeah uh, which is a, it's a very different skill set that cameron as good as he is he's not a comedy guy and, right. you know, and it's proven by how insecure he was about the writing of the script. You know, it reminds me of like when you see a new comedian show up for that first batch of open mics, they're saying things that they are think phrased in a stand up type way. But it's just for the veterans who have been there for a year, two years, five years or more. It's just nails on a chalkboard. Well, it's the delivery's like, oh. off. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's the delivery. Something the look- could look great on paper, but the delivery is off. And I think exactly. I think a lot of the comedy in this comes across that way. Yeah, um, for sure. except when someone like Jamie Lee Curtis does something that's that can only be done through performance, like when she falls during the striptease, you know, things yes. like that. You yeah. know, that that stuff comes across because it's just it's just a it's it's all performance based, you know. Right, right. Well, and then there's also the fact that that section of the movie goes on for 45 minutes. Yeah. Like literally, yeah. I, I timed yeah. it today when I watched it because I was curious. I, I timed it from the moment that uh, that Harry, that, that she gets brought in to the moment that the terrorists burst into that room. And it's 45 minutes, uh, a solid 45 minutes of movie <laughs> uh, that goes on really long especially because there's a guy harry trasker whose job it is to save the world on a regular basis he's using all of these resources for a gag when there's still a terrorist out there with a nuclear weapon that he apparently just forgot about for a while because his wife was he thought his wife was cheating on him so even from a story standpoint i'd say that's a flaw you know it's it's Um, tough to work through because i feel like there could have been some editing where they're jumping yeah. back and forth at least reminding us that the terrorist is still out there and know? i'm working through it right now as we're talking about it like i'm, I'm like oh I, you know like I, I don't think jamie lee curtis ends up being helpless she ends up being a secret agent at the end of it but yeah. at the same time i get it i get it it does spend a lot of time like playing with it uh she's also falling for stupid ass bill paxton uh <laughs> that gets them wet you know, the vet so, gets some wet, and so uh, got an ass like a ten-year-old boy. That's just science. <laughs> so, you he know, is, it's tough uh, because I mean, even even with the air, uh, the it was like the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. Uh, they had a protest in Washington about the movie and stuff. And you want to? I, I don't know. There's a part of me, and again, I try to understand that I'm like a white dude, and uh, you know. So what do I know? But the you know, they, 
they had a problem with portraying Middle Easterners as homicidal religious zealots and, yeah. and like all of this stuff. And uh, they wanted to boycott it. Uh, but according to James Cameron, he I mean, he responded to some of this that he had originally intended Irish terrorists. Yeah. Uh, that, that was like his thing. But then the movie uh, Blown Away, uh, he had he had heard about Blown Away. And they were going to have Tommy Lee Jones, right? Yeah, they were going to have Irish terrorists. So he switched it. And uh, uh, they ultimately, I think, included like something at the end of the credit saying something about this, that this is not intended to uh, be representative. Sure. I mean, yeah, that's a little like. I don't know, too little, too late kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I, it's I do. tough. I mean, my, my problem is, it's like one of the things I think that the left side of the aisle sometimes has is that I can't take a fucking joke sometimes. And yeah. then at the same time, I understand on the other side of things, they're like. You well, you have be, to sympathize yeah. with like, if you're yeah. a, a person of mis- Middle Eastern origin, you know, mm-hmm. your your family's Muslim or your family's Arab, or like uh, the, the actor who played the, I don't think they ever say what country they're from, like purposely, but the, the actor who played the, the lead terrorist is Pakistani. Uh, but really, in so many white people see anyone from anyone who's brown as being the same, like, which is fucked up, but it's, it's the truth that a lot of people see them that way. Well, if you're looking for like um, a fight, you could even also say, well, one of the main good guys is also Pakistani. Yeah, was he I Pakistani mean, because the other guys were or was, you know, like, I, I mean, I think I think Cameron definitely put know. Grant Haslov in there as kind of a like, oh, yeah, but we're going to have a, a good guy who's brown as well. And he sacrifices himself, you know, and yeah, uh, it, it, that that's also maybe a little too little too late. I I, um, I don't know. It's if you're someone who if you're if you're and even like pre it's worse now post 9-11. But even then, like, you, you know, if you're you have to realize if you're. We're, like you said, we're three white guys talking about this. But if you if you're Middle Eastern or you're uh, you you have you look like these terrorists, then you could you could uh, you can understand why you would have problems with like oh man, like everyone is that people Hollywood is just p- portraying all brown people as terrorists, uh, which does happen, you know. And it, and it, yeah. it's not it's not exclusive to this film. Fuck, it happened in Iron Man, you know, twenty five years later. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, that doesn't make it right just because it keeps happening and it's happening less and less, thankfully, but it, it has been happening for decades. Uh, the same thing happened with Russians, you know, uh, which you know, it, it's a little bit different because uh, Russians are white people. So there's not like a a racial thing that's involved as, as you know, there's been so much racial discrimination against Middle Eastern people, especially since 9-11. But due to in a large part because of how pe- people uh People who are inclined to be racist anyway, usually, honestly, are <laughs> see any brown person as, or any Muslim person as like a terrorist or a villain. And they're, and they're simply not. Right. And we're seeing more things now. Like I, I think uh, something like the recent Ms. Marvel is a really great step in the right direction. But I, I'm not going to tell anyone that they should not be offended by that. You know, that I, uh... they should not be offended by the way that the terrorists are portrayed in this. I watched the movie. I can't, Amma I don't come from that. Well, tune in for the bonus episode. Cause we had to do a bonus episode. I had some thoughts about Miss Marvel and Amma and uh, everything everywhere, all at once and stuff like that. Uh, the, these not, not like in a bad way. It feels like I'm going to be like, fuck foreigners. That's not what I mean. <laughs> let's, go ahead, let's go ahead and clip that out. <laughs> and now no, a special message no, from say, Gary. I just feel like that was building up to that. <laughs> 
you know, no, no. What irritates me more and more is that just people are shitheads. That's the problem. That's the problem with everything because, you know, like on one hand, I want to like defend like this movie and say like they weren't even thinking about all that shit. But then on the other hand, I'm like, that's the fucking problem. Yeah, maybe they should have been. <laughs> maybe they should have thought about like, that. Yeah. <laughs> just do so, a diehard and make a group of terrorists who are all of all different nationalities. Right. You know, right. offend everyone. You offend no one. Yeah, just fucking <laughs> right. offend them all. You know? Go with uh, the Irish terrorists. Do some potatoes in there. And like, yeah. do- <laughs> one of them's dressed like a leprechaun. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I, I think when Cameron and, and they're led by John O'Connor, <laughs> that's that's how we bring it all back, gentlemen. <laughs> I love a callback, Todd. <laughs> I love the callback. Uh, when, when James Cameron's career is discussed, I feel like this movie is one that gets left out of the conversation a lot. Uh, like when people talk about James Cameron, they, they tend to talk about his sci-fi stuff and obviously Titanic. Uh, but I think it's treatment of, of women and, and, uh, and Muslim and Arabs might have a lot to do with that because a lot, uh, unlike a lot of other James Cameron movies, this one actually feels more dated. Partially, I think that's because it's the only film of his that he's made that's set in present day uh but it's also i think because a lot of its social attitudes do feel outdated so people don't discuss it as much or they overlook it or don't feel like it's worthy of discussion and i mean listen i know we talk a lot about a lot of horror movies and i, I watch a lot of like exploitation movies and things like that at home and this is something that comes up a lot it doesn't mean you have to write the movie off it just means that you have to consider it in the context in which it was made you can acknowledge it's issues that doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. You know what I mean? That's how I feel about it. Uh, I, I can watch a movie where I'm like, Oh yeah, that's unless the whole movie has a very problematic attitude, which, which does also happen. But sometimes you just have to like, go like, man, that's fucked up that they didn't think that was a problem. But I mean, Oh dude, I'm not going to watch, watch a movie, movie that drops the <laughs> F word. That's not fuck. I'm yeah. like, Oh, you can't say that. Yeah. Yeah, like but, it just, uh, and, and it doesn't make it right but it's like i'm not gonna write the whole movie off because of that you know right. and and now watching this um like and i loved this movie as a kid i'm sure the jamie lee curtis striptease scene had nothing to do with that um when i was uh 12 years <laughs> old when this came out i'm sure it had nothing to do with it at all of course, I mean, it's totally course. coincidental but i, I don't really care love, how i don't care I, until <laughs> until the day i die i don't care how evolved our society gets i will always love titties yeah, <laughs> uh, but you can clip I, that out, Todd. <laughs> now another message from Gary Horn. <laughs> uh, but I do watching this now. I have to admit that this might be Cameron's worst movie. Not counting Piranha oh. Two. Piranha Two. Piranha Two doesn't count. He didn't direct that movie. Right. Um, I, I'll wait until I've rewatched Titanic and Avatar to make an official ranking on this, but. Uh, this is definitely the worst that we've talked about so far, but you know what? Every director has a worst movie. Uh, that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. True yeah. Lies might be Cameron's worst, but it's by no means a bad movie. Uh, it is a very good movie, I think, uh, featuring some of the best action movies of its time. I mean, you know, we talk, people talk like when, when, I can't, when a director's really good, uh, Quentin Tarantino is one I always come back to. Everyone's like, his worst movie is Death Proof. Like, yeah, probably, but Death Proof fucking slaps. Like, Death Proof is awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it might it might be his worst movie, but it's still a fucking great movie. <laughs> so, like, some directors are so good that even their worst movie is a really good movie. And I think that's kind of the, the case with James Cameron. Uh, yeah. But this one's a little messier than his other movies, I think. It's a, in, in true James Cameron fashion, it's a little too long. Uh, 
and and I think that while some of his movies justify their length a little bit more, uh, I think the story that he's telling here doesn't require two and a half hours to tell it. Uh, and the fact that it fully abandons its main terrorist plot for a good 45 minutes in the middle, it probably has a lot to do with that. Mm. Uh, but and then also, like, I don't know that I ever wa- noticed it before watching it. I, the, I watched it twice in the last week or two. I don't know if I ever noticed this before, but watching it this time, I'm like, man, Cameron really makes no real attempt to hide the fact that he's using stunt doubles in a lot of these scenes. <laughs> like, it is, it, it starts in the very first scene when, when uh when arnold is running down that hill in the snow in that opening scene like it's very and there's like an explosion behind him like it's very clearly not arnold but like he's literally running at the camera you see this guy's full face you see the stunt doubles full face i assume that's joel kramer uh and then even worse is in the the horseback riding scene Mm -hmm. uh like it's clearly not arnold in most of those shots and the the one where he the horse like jumps in the fountain when they're in the hotel yeah, Cameron goes into slow-mo and you can clearly look at this guy's face and like, that's not fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's way too <laughs> like thin. He's not definitely not Arnold, <laughs> but it's like, why, why are we not at least trying to cut around the fact that this is, we know it's not Arnold. I mean, obviously, but when you watch a movie, it's like a suspension of be- disbelief kind of thing. And it's so like, you'll hang a Harrier jet 30 stories off the ground, yeah, but you're not going to maybe do the guy's face a little differently maybe throw yeah, just a little cg mask on him but when man. i was reading <laughs> the stuff about like no when i was reading the stuff about james cameron like going ape shit and freaking out his first wife on how much he was in the movies he was like very much like i don't know who humphrey bogart is i'm just interested in like what the fuck is going on in these scenes like the yeah. craziness that's happening and how they did this so I can buy that James Cameron at the end of the day is probably like, I don't, I don't you know, whatever. It's not him. I don't know. I, I have I'm a hard trying time. To, I'm trying to tell you, look at this shit. Look yeah, at this but to feet. me, like, he's such a perfectionist that it's really surprising to me that he would allow that to, that, that I mean, and I even said on our Terminator 2 episode that, like, sometimes I like to when the seams show in a movie like where you can see how they did it like in the scenes in terminator 2 where you can see the back projection of the car i don't mind that that's fine but i have my fucking limits <laughs> like and when i'm watching an action scene that's supposed to be arnold and it's a great action scene and it's clearly not arnold and you can only tell that because of the angles that you're shooting it at like shoot it at a different angle where you can't tell it's arnold or yeah. we, we you know it's 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 really weird that he would allow that because he is such a perfectionist yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's i don't know it's it's really off-putting to me because uh i mean i i intellectually know it's a stunt man you know this isn't fucking tom cruise of course uh but i don't know the fact that you could that they don't even try to hide it bugs me for some reason yeah, <laughs> yeah. maybe they were a little more concerned with whether or not they could the to determine whether or not they should (laughs) thank you gary (laughs) so story-wise i can you can you kind of see where cameron's coming from on this movie uh i'll return a little bit to a quote that i read from cameron early in this episode where he said i saw the film as an anti-james bond a reality check on the uber male fantasy I think what Cameron's attempting to do here is to kind of deconstruct the type of action movie tough guy that was prevalent throughout the 80s and the early 90s, uh, characters that were often played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, And I think it does mostly work in that regard, even though I think that there are other movies that do it a little bit better, which brings me to my pick for further viewing, which is Last Action Hero. 
I knew you were going to say that. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Last Action Hero. First of all, I love it. I, I absolutely love that movie. It, we, we mentioned it earlier, but it had been Schwarzenegger's most recent film at the time of True Lies' release, and it was uh, a, a big flop. But I adore that movie, uh, and I think it's actually funnier and a better deconstruction of the stereotypical action films than True Lies is because I think it plays the comedy a lot better than True, True Lies does. Uh, I think the action's probably better in True Lies. I mean, it's big, and but but they're going for something very different in Last Action Hero. But I think the two complement each other very well because of that. Like if you're, if, especially if you've been having like a movie, like an Arnold marathon, you've watched like Commando and Raw Deal and all this stuff. And then you throw on these two movies, it's kind of a coda on those where like, you're yeah. like, or oh, this is kind of like, this is kind of pulling the rug out from under that whole persona. I think that's really fun. Yeah. Um, but I do have one other one that I'll let you, you guys actually i'm gonna let you guys go first and then i'll go with my my next pick i don't know like i i thought i mean it depends on the way you want to look at this right like it's like do you want to go harder into exactly what this movie is like as far as like crazy action and fun um 90s action i mean my favorite 90s action stuff's like the rock yeah Uh, yeah, yeah. And, Connor. Uh, yeah, Connor. yeah, mm-hmm. like that stuff. Michael Bay. You want to go more machismo? Fucking Demolition Man or something oh. like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those movies. <laughs> those are fun. I don't know. Um, I honestly think Demolition Man does a little bit of that deconstruction thing too. I, because, I think it does too because yeah. because like uh, you know Sly's character in that is this big macho guy and he gets put to this future where he is very out of place. You know, mm-hmm. because that kind of st- cop isn't needed anymore. So it's kind of doing the same thing, you know, yeah. in, in its own way. I'm going to tell you a weird one uh, that deconstructs. Like, if you want to talk about deconstruction, and one of the things that uh, I, I literally am not even making this up. I just watched both of these movies recently. And uh, one of them, because the director's my favorite director of all time, and that's Big Trouble with Little China, in Little China, because that completely tears apart Kurt Russell as like the action star. He's like, such he a is, goober. He is yeah. kind of useless. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I love that movie for that reason. And um, and then also, like, I think you could take like a movie. This is gonna. This is gonna. When we look back on like Kurt who gave us that awesome list for letterbox. And we found out that Todd's recommended movie with uh, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw was like speed. Yeah. yeah. I, I still got to go back science. and listen to that. Weird science. Weird science. Like I just watched that movie and I don't know that I've ever sat down and like really paid attention to that movie, but I okay. feel like weird science totally deconstructs like for the eighties, like it totally like tears apart the like teen comedy kind of the thing? teen comedy. Okay. And like, the I haven't male, seen it in many like, years. I'm so. just into hot chicks and big boobies and yeah. like all that stuff. Like that movie plays with that a little bit. And huh. uh, I don't know. It's interesting, but interesting. Nice. All, right. all right. All right. So for mine, I kind of wanted to pair it with another James Bond, but you know, is like, but he does this, or he's he got, goes to this. He's got place. a great butt. He does have a great butt. <laughs> yeah. uh, any of them, any yeah. of the bonds. They all do. Squ- yeah, they all do squat but, esp- but especially Daniel Craig. Come on, yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but uh, you know, with True Lies being uh, James Bond, but he goes home to his wife. Um, I was looking by hard. Uh, no, <laughs> this was um, James Bond, but he goes to his 10 year high school reunion. Okay. 1997. 
All right, don't know. Gross Point Blank. Oh yeah, great movie. Okay. I think it, he's a hitman. I saw a spy. He's a yeah, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> no, but kind of that whole that whole vibe of he's like he's at this point where he's starting to examine his life and yeah, all okay. of these things, and one of his colleagues wants to go to breakfast with friends and talk, and and he's you know. Hey, thanks very much for the pen. I just used it to st- kill somebody. Okay. I see what uh, you're saying. He I'll shows pick it up, up what these, you're putting down. Yeah, he shows up to these awkward things. Like, oh, I should have brought my gun. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it's a great um, movie too. Honestly, yeah, it's you know got a you know great cast. I think they nail the comedy aspect. The I think where I think they are kind of very complementary these two because I think Gross Point Blank is a little more heavy on the comedy. You can look mm-hmm. at the cast and they're all you know, fairly well-versed in comedy and it still has good action, but the action is a little, a couple notches down. Sure. Um, yeah. So I think, I think that would make a really nice uh, double feature. Okay. I like I was, that. I was I like sitting that. here, like, as you were talking and I was thinking about other movies that are, are similar that like, I had another one and I can't remember it now. Well, <laughs> I, I was just thinking about how like, uh, uh, you know, like hot fuzz or something like there's clearly yeah. the guy who like, loves action movies and is like super into it and Mm -hmm. like and it's just it it plays with those tropes it is interesting that cameron seems to be able to do both at the same time yeah so obviously yeah i'll I'll give him props for that like like he personifies those tropes while kind of deconstructing them at the same time yeah Yeah, exactly so it's it's uh, i'll give him that one like he he tears it apart i feel like there was something else i was thinking of and i and i can't remember oh Oh, uh, earlier while you were talking, I was also thinking, I was like, you know, what's funny is like Indiana Jones is almost like that in a way. Like he's he's very much I know we're going way off base probably by me saying that, but it's just that he's like very macho and even dudes like bros consider him a very macho like guy. But he's also very goofy. He's also goofy. Yeah. Yeah. He like falls apart at times and like doesn't, you know, and he's he's also really cares about the woman you know like it, snakes it's just why like, did it have to be snakes i don't yeah. know anyway yeah, it's very it's, it's a very human to see thing. these things yeah. toyed with like yeah. the ultimate alpha male stuff uh, put against like just being a human being yeah, yeah. i like that so so <laughs> i'm gonna go to a weird direction on this so there was there were talks of a true lies sequel for quite a long time immediately after the movie came out there were talks uh but then cameron got busy making uh titanic <laughs> which was quite a story, uh, which we'll get into on our next episode. But uh, so that kind of fell to the wayside for a bit. And then after 9-11, he kind of lost interest in doing that because he's like, he, he felt it was really difficult to portray terrorists in any kind of light that was considered like light or funny, right? Yeah, which is, yeah. which is uh, I, understandable. So the closest thing that we've ever gotten to a True Lies sequel is a movie that you may not have heard of. It was written by Tom Arnold himself. What? <laughs> directed by Penelope Spheris, the director of Wayne's World, the first one. Okay. As well as like Suburbia, uh, The Decline of Western Civilization, one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Uh, it's a movie called The Kid and I. So in this movie... And I, I'm going to give you a little plot synopsis because I'm sure you haven't seen it or heard of it. No. Uh, Tom Arnold plays sort of a version of himself. He's an he's an actor who has had a, but he's had like kind of a, his career is on a down slump. It starts off with him like wanting to commit suicide. And then 
he gets approached by a, a, an agent played by Henry Winkler <laughs> that nice. shows up and offers him a business, offers him like a business deal where he's got, there's like this billionaire played by Joe uh, Mantenega. M- Mantenegna? How do you say his name? I don't know. You know who I'm talking about. Mantegna. Is that how you say his name? I yeah, think you know it is something about. weird okay. like that. Yeah. So he plays the he plays the um, the billionaire, and he wants to hire Tom Arnold's character to write and co-star in a movie that is basically a sequel to True Lies because his son his, his son's favorite movie is True Lies. So in this movie, Tom Arnold's character, even though he's not called Tom Arnold, his name's like Bill. His name's Bill Williams, so his name is actually William Williams. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he 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 starred in True Lies, right? His character starred in True Lies in this movie, right? Mm-hmm. So his so this billionaire's son's favorite movie is True Lies. He wants a sequel, and he wants to also his son wants to be in it. He wants to be in this movie. He wants to be an action star. So Tom Arnold decides, you know, he needs the money, so he takes the job. And here's the thing. This movie co-stars. First, look at this right now. Is- <laughs> Shannon Elizabeth is in it. They they play. Um, they play. Who does Shannon Elizabeth play? The 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 wife of a billionaire. Uh, Linda Hamilton plays the film producer, oh, who wow. is Tom Arnold's ex-wife in the movie. <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and then they make so Linda Hamilton. So another Terminator connection, another James Cameron connection. And yeah, then they end up making the movie, which they call here's the sequel, the sequel to True Lies is named Two Spies. True Lies, Two Spies. Nice. <laughs> Save <of> the movie. <laughs> so, they, so that's it. That's my other pick for oh, and here uh, and uh I was Arthur about to Schwar- say Schwarzenegger is in the movie, Jamie Lee Curtis is in the movie, like as their character, as themselves. I was going to say, are you going to skip? Uh, I was going to say, are you going to skip Shaq? Sha- Shaquille and- O'Neal is in it and Bill fucking Goldberg is in it. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is happening with this movie? What is this? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, there That's you go. There, uh, yeah. So, it nice. was just like, and this was while Arnold was governor. I think this is 2005. So he would have still been governor, which him becoming governor was another reason why they never moved forward on a true lie sequel because he, he became governor in 2003. So, um, yeah. But if you want to listen, I'm not, it's hard to say I'm recommending The Kid and I because I'm, I'm not saying that it's a good movie to watch, but I am saying that it is a companion piece to Oh, sure. Lies. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, do I, do I smell another uh, Cinema Shock uh, double feature night at Radio Room? <laughs> True <laughs> Lies and then The Kid and I. <laughs> I think that would be great. <laughs> Everyone would be like, the, the what? The kid? The what? Yeah. <laughs> what is this? Yeah. So anyway, that's my other out of left field double feature. I just came across that movie in my research and I was like, oh my God. Like, what is this? <laughs> so anyway, that's our that's our further, further viewing for this. We one. didn't mention um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I don't know how that didn't come up. I know. I I so feel yeah. Like, yeah, I feel like Mr. and Mrs. Yeah. Smith was very inspired by, by this, you yeah. could say. It's oh, like sure. that's where, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis and, and Arnold at the end of this movie is the beginning of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Right. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that'd you're be right. Good. You're absolutely right. <laughs> well, True Lies, as we mentioned, was a big success, uh, but it wasn't the kind of like game changer that Terminator 2 had been, uh, d- despite its enormous budget, breathtaking stunts. Uh, it was not breaking any like real, it wasn't really breaking any new ground like The Abyss and Terminator 2 had been, you know. 
Uh, it had allowed James Cameron to play outside of the sci-fi genre, uh, and it had helped to solidify his relationship with Fox after making this huge production deal. Uh, but really the biggest achievement on this uh, was probably getting uh, his special effects company off the ground, Digital Domain. For their very first film, Digital Domain earned an Oscar nomination for its visual effects on True Lies. They were nominated for Best Visual Effects. Uh, it lost to ILM uh, for their work on uh, Forrest fucking Gump. So, piece you know, of garbage as nobody's ever piece seen of, piece of shit forrest gump uh <laughs> but it, you think i'm joking you think i'm are you, you serious I'm, you don't yeah. like forrest gump <laughs> no fuck forrest gump <laughs> but, <laughs> anyway right. it was it, we'll, we'll do forrest gump we'll do a robert zemeckis series down the line you can hear all my thoughts on forrest gump oh, i loved boy. it in the 90s but i don't love it anymore anyway okay. it was it was time for james cameron to move on to the next film and we all know what that next film was, right? Yep. Spider-Man. Yes. <laughs> so, so for a little while, that did seem to be what Cameron's next move was going to be. Uh, we mentioned earlier he'd been working on a script for this before even working on True Lies. Uh, I think we even mentioned in our first episode of this season uh, or this series that he had grown up. He's, you know, he's a, he loved comic books and he especially loved Spider-Man comics. And he had actually convinced Carol Co., who produced you know, Terminator 2, to purchase the rights to Spider-Man, which they did way back in 1990, so a few years before this. That's why he was working on that treatment. He had written a scriptment for Spider-Man, uh, and everyone in Hollywood loved it. Stan Lee read it. Stan Lee loved it. Like, they, everyone loved this script. Wow. Uh, and his, he, he went with an origin story, you know, uh, and it was pretty accurate to the comic book. Uh, it, was, it was pretty accurate. It was, uh, you know, Peter Parker is a dorky kid who's got a mind for science, something that James Cameron could very much <laughs> relate with. Uh, and it was, you know, set in with, with Spider-Man as a high school kid, right? Mm -hmm. But he did make a few thoughtful changes, including giving Peter Parker biological web shooters, which was an idea that Sam Raimi, of course, would later use in his Spider-Man film in 2001. Now, huh. James Cameron has gone on record about this. Because uh, he didn't receive any credit on Spider-Man, uh, the, the 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 Sam Raimi movie, but uh, his response was basically, uh, when someone asked him, you know, how you feel about them not giving you credit, he says, "Well, that wasn't very nice of them, was it?" <laughs> like he he honestly didn't care uh, because he didn't need the money that would come from any you know, residuals he would get off that. Yeah. At this point, he didn't need it, so he didn't really care. He didn't care enough to fight it in court, basically. Right. So uh, it would have been fascinating, I think, to see Cameron's take on Spider-Man, but it, sure. was, it, well, it wasn't meant to be, though. Uh, Carol Co. filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 1995, and during the bankruptcy filing, it, it became clear that they didn't have the rights to Spider-Man in quite as concrete a way as they might have thought. Uh, according to Cameron, uh, is a quote, here I am working on Spider-Man and it turns out there's a lien against the rights and Sony's got a piece of it and Carol Co. doesn't really own it, even though they think they own it. So, and this all date, this is a very complicated history, which we're obviously not going to get into today, but it dates back to like the mid eighties when Marvel's selling rights to their characters left and right for movies. Uh, and it's, it gets very complicated, wow. you know, and it's still very complicated in, in terms of Spider-Man because Sony's Sony's still, owns part of the rights and but marvel's producing the movies and it's it's a whole big clusterfuck 
And Leonardo DiCaprio should be thankful because he would have literally had these new uh, web shooters installed into his fucking wrists. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to James Cameron. He's like, <laughs> we need him to literally shoot webs out of his hands. And, and they're like, we can't do that. And he's like, yeah. I don't want to hear can't. I don't I don't believe in the word can't. <laughs> he's going to actually Leo shoot webs. Actually scratch that. He's going to shoot the web right out of his ass, just like a real spider. <laughs> <laughs> uh cameron actually tried to get fox to go because you know he had this deal with fox he tried to get them to go after spider-man to try to get the rights but they actually weren't willing to get into the nasty legal fight and potential bidding war with other studios and producers that you know there are all these overlapping claims on the character mm-hmm. again dating back to all that mess in the 80s uh but in the end it didn't really matter james cameron moved on he's like fuck it you know let's go on to something well, wait else. a second but you are saying there is potential that that uh marvel could convince james cameron to do uh the the king dynasty uh and probably <laughs> just, not anymore they can, <laughs> they can convince him not anymore pick Maybe up an in the mcu films uh, I, don't, I don't see that happening ever ever <laughs> he is way too he is way too james cameron to ever want to do what Kevin Feige tells him to do. But if and we give if we give lived. Cameron one Marvel movie, that will let everything freeze for a while and we'll kind of a lot of people will come back from this Marvel fatigue that they've got. <laughs> and then once his come out because this movie's gonna out, take four years to make. Yeah, because it's gonna take a long, long time. Yeah. Once it comes out, then uh you know we can jump back into the Marvel stuff. Well he was finally ready to move on to his next movie. And this is a story his next movie would take him even further from, you know, this was this one's present day, you know, True Lies. But his next movie is going to take him even further from those futuristic trappings of his early films. Uh, one that would actually take him 85 years in the past to the real world sinking of the Titanic. And yeah. it's a huge story. I hope we can fit it all into one episode. Because I'd the love fuck for somebody that? to cover Titanic someday and to talk about everything. That uh, we're talking done. about it, Gary. You're going to talk about it. <laughs> Gary's never seen it. We're not going to get into that 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 conversation we're leaving for our next bonus episode about what Gary, how Gary feels going into his first viewing of Titanic. But we are going to do that on our very next episode of Cinema Shock. We're going to discuss James Cameron uh, filming uh, the most expensive movie ever made, again, for the third film in a row. So <laughs> <laughs> that's where we're at. Uh, of course, you can watch Titanic along with us. Luckily, it's a little bit easier to find than True Lies was. Uh, Titanic is, I think it's on like HBO Max or something right now. It's like really easy to find. Yeah. So luckily, we're not running into that problem for the next couple of episodes on this series. So watch Titanic along with us. Uh, I personally have not seen it in many, many years. So I'm, I'm very excited. I've already started. I, I've already started my research for that episode. I'm reading. Uh, I, I mentioned to you guys, I mean, Gary has the same book, but a 200 page book just about the making of the Titanic. So we have plenty of information Ooh. and it's going to be fun because it is a fascinating story. So I'm looking forward to it too. It's been years. Yeah, I, many, many I years. Tell you how, how long it's been, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Well, guys, James that, Cameron's Titanic, or how Gary learned to hate Leonardo DiCaprio. There's, no, there's <laughs> nothing wrong with Leo. Nothing wrong with Leo. Uh, anyway, that's it for this episode, guys. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Uh, where can you fellas be found on the internet for our listeners to follow you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, I am at this is Gary Horde on all of the social medias. 
And uh, if you liked any of the uh, Star Trek stuff we talked about, please consider coming over and checking out my show, Computer Resume Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support us on Patreon and you can find us on YouTube. And uh, you can find us on all of the socials at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Discord, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond. Gary doesn't like to self-promote, but you can also find him at This Is Pro Wrestling, TIPW show, uh, where you've been doing a lot of cool stuff, interviews and after shows and all that shit for the NWA. So I'll help promote that for you, Gary. Well, thanks. I just I just <laughs> figure you get to This Is Gary Horde. Eventually, you'll find the other stuff. I know, but you know, you can promote <laughs> your other shit, Gary. You put a lot of time into it. I don't have an at D&D Beyond profile. Neither do I. Ever. You should. Neither do I, but uh, you can find me at Justin underscore Bishop. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Uh, You can find the show at Cinema underscore Shock, uh, Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook. You can find us at Cinemashock.net. If you go to Cinemashock.net, you'll find all of our episodes. You'll find links to uh, all of our series. Like, you can find all the James Cameron movies linked all together, you know, in one little series if you want to start from the beginning. Uh, You can find links to our Discord, our merchandise, all that shit is on cinemashock.net. Uh, we do not have a Patreon yet, but uh, if you have ideas for what you'd like to see on a Cinema Shock Patreon, what you would be willing mm. to pay for on a Cinema Shock Patreon, please let us know. You can email us. You can find our email address on the website uh, or uh, twit, tweet at us or DM us on Instagram. We, we monitor all that shit pretty closely. So let us know. I'm curious what you guys want to see. And until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Same thing happened to me with Johnny, remember? I have no idea what's going on, right? I come home one day and the house is empty. I mean, completely empty. She even took the keys. What kind of sick bitch takes the keys? You know what? I say we concentrate on work, buddy. That's what I do every time my life turns to dog shit. I concentrate on work and that gets me by. All right, buddy, this is going to be great. You know what? We're going to catch some terrorists. We're going to beat the crap out of them. You're going to feel a hell of a lot better. Johnny, Johnny, can't live with him. Can't kill him. (laughs) Thank you, Todd Arnold. I appreciate it. I really thought you were going going to go with a Paxton. Uh, I I thought about it, but I was just like, oh, can I say the ten year old ass line? Like Justin already <laughs> did. Yeah, I, yeah, I already did. said it. I already said it. And there's also the uh, she had a set of titties that make you want to stand up and beg for buttermilk. Yeah, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't know. <laughs> kind of gross sounded honestly it does i mean who wants to drink buttermilk jesus no Christ. you put it on your cereal duh you put buttermilk on your cereal what the fuck's wrong you put it in a pancake <laughs> and that is the only thing you use buttermilk for i feel like there was an episode of the old batman series i remember watching where he drank buttermilk at the and, and like alfred delivered buttermilk to him oh, and drank jesus it. christ yeah Drinking but. regular milk is weird enough, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck drinks regular milk if you're not three years old?
listen, uh, listeners, chime in and uh, send all of your milk related hate mail to at Justin underscore Bishop. Yeah, I don't give a fuck who, who who's passionate about milk. 